<laughs> Drink and eat. We got a hundred and thirty k's coming up. It's coming up. That's a lot. Big tuna coming in here tonight. Too. It's good. Feeling it? I'm just over there. There's nothing on TV tonight. Yeah, nothing on TV tonight. It's Monday, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's no Love Love Island on yet. No. You'll be on the next Love Island with that shirt on. Do you think so? Is that where? It, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll, I might get spotted. All right, you might get. I think. I think we got so scum, spotted you know? for Love Island. <laughs> oh, I'd love it if you went on Lo- Love Island. Just really, it's not going to happen. Just t- talk, <laughs> spoke to them all about this philosophy and just ruin their minds. I think they would just leave. That you would actually make them all leave and win the show. It would be yeah. Fun. They don't, they, 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 I'd ask them the fundamental question of metaphysics. There's this thing in philosophy called the fundamental question of metaphysics. How, how heavy is that? So I think people should ask it on Tinder or whatever. You know, when they're trying to think, people are trying to think, what should you say to people on Tinder? Like, what questions do you ask? Them? Ask them the fundamental question of metaphysics. Because <laughs> like, if they can answer that, right, then that, that's, that's really something. And it is, right? It's, very, it's a short question. It's why is there something... Why is there something? Why is there something as opposed to nothing? Hmm. What do you think? What I th- what do you think? I don't know. I don't even know the answer. What do you think about this then? So obviously we are the universe, right? We're made of the universe. So are we obviously. not the universe becoming conscious that it exists? I know that is an interesting idea. Actually, the Stoics talk about that. They they like literally have that same kind of idea that if bits of the universe are conscious, does that mean that the, in a sense, the universe as a whole has, has conscious bits? Yeah, like, has conscious parts. Like, it's an interesting idea. We must yeah. be, you know, because we are made from the stars. We've got carbon atoms inside us, Donald. We're made from dead. We are. Stardust. We are the ch- literally, Scott. What you're saying, buddy, is that we are the children of stardust. Yes. Yeah, I think I think it makes us feel special, doesn't it? But when you say it like that, you should, it feels like you should break into song or something about it. Like, <laughs> it's like have you seen that musical here? Like, you're probably too young for that. It's like a sixties yeah. sort of thing about the hippies and stuff. The age of Aquarius. You've maybe heard the song. Oh, oh it's imagine very, it's very kind of like you know, <laughs> and like. Um, I I would have loved to be. The chat around in the 1960s and 70s would have been good with the the LSD psychedelic storm in the California where everybody was like hippie central. The better they came up with some wild ideas. Well, as Steve Jobs took LSD and said it was one of the most fundamental things he ever did to, for his thinking. I'm not saying everybody go and take class A, whatever drug there is, but <laughs> these people thinking different. It's not going to make you the CEO of the most profitable company in the world. <laughs> I think that's a coincidence. But, yeah, I think know. so. It's not the cause. Don't we all? It's not a cause-effect relationship. Yeah, <laughs> we oh, start yeah. something next week. Now I'll call it Orange, and you see me in about fifteen years. Now the uh, CEO <laughs> one bill. Well, that's good. We've got a good turnout. Two hundred people, Donald. So this is good news. What I'd like people to lot. comment first is in the thing, so we know where we're at. How many people have heard of Stoicism, and how are you familiar with you know CBT or whatever those type of stuff? If you're familiar, say yes. If you're not familiar at all, say no. And then we know where we're at. No, no, um, don't Google CBT if you haven't heard of it, because it comes up with something completely unrelated. <laughs> yeah, you'd just be doing something wrong. For a, there's a set, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, it's a kind of a sexual fetish or something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Probably Greek as well. I'm not going to say, you can look it up afterwards, Scott. 
I'm acting like I don't know, but I'm completely. But you know that. I, completely, <laughs> I have no idea. About it, then. You're an expert. <laughs> I have no idea, Your Honor. That's what I've been talking about for these for, long, for ages. They think they're talking about that, but we're going to hit the other thing, you know? The, ch- the chinning in with, for the other type <laughs> of CBT conversation. Oh, but man. that's, yeah. So it's cognitive behavioral therapy. Did you say that or did you just say CBT? Cognitive yeah, behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy. There's a mix here. There's no no's and there's yes from book club, which is good from reading your book, actually. So it's good. You know, somebody read my book. That's good. Yeah. There's some of them who read your book here. They're all thinking like Roman emperors here. Be able to retire soon. <laughs> Keep mm. going. A few more Q&As. Yeah. A few more, few more Q&As and a few more books. Someone who's heard of Donald's work and CBT, heard of a friend called Marcus, of course, Marcus Aurelius. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what? So do you want to run through what this what this hour is going to look like? A while and a bit is going to look like Donald for these. Uh... Yeah, I've got some slides. I'll throw those up in a bit, Scott, if that's okay. Yes. But we'll just do a little kind of preamble now. I feel like yes. we've maybe still got people joining and all that. But yeah. I thought today we'd kind of do a little bit of an introduction to uh, stoicism and how it relates to CBT. And uh, mainly I want to talk about worrying like, and how to stop worrying. And I call, we call this thing that we call cognitive diffusion or distancing. So kind of interesting way of overcoming worry. So we'll start off with the stoicism and then what stoicism can do to help with that particular problem. I think it's something that everyone can benefit from because Scott, who doesn't worry? You. Me. Oh, that's right. I don't. <laughs> apart from me, though. Like, and you? You don't worry, buddy? I, I can worry. tell. I worry. No. I worry. I actually, what worries have you, Scott? What worries could you possibly have? Donald, I actually used your technique last night. The worry mm-hmm. postponement technique at 2 a.m. I actually uh-huh. used it and it worked. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, we could talk about <laughs> <laughs> But I'm just saying, it's stuff, it's, these, these tools are very handy. Uh-huh. At 2 a.m.? What were you yeah. worrying about at 2 a.m.? Uh, if you know, I woke up because mm-hmm. the wind was insanely strong last night. And really? I went Is outside it... my room and my front door was on the latch. So uh-huh. I thought someone's in the flat. Ghosts. So I thought, I can't sleep now because someone's waiting to come and, you know, obviously you think- Mother you in your sleep. Come and kill me, yeah. Yeah. And, um, but they didn't. It's annoying when that happens. Yeah, so I thought- Wait. <laughs> I'll well, wait. I, I thought I'll, wor- I'll worry about someone killing me tomorrow. We don't have that. We have these, I'll postpone it till tomorrow. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll worry about it then. But, uh, and then suddenly it doesn't seem as important anymore. Like yes. in the cold light of day. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's weird, isn't it? I, we had that, I had these horrible noises outside my window. It sounded like someone was trying to break in and then I realised it was the pigeons. There's a lot of pigeons <laughs> outside. They, they make an amazing amount of noise banging against the window and stuff. Yeah, pigeons are deadly, man. Come on. They get bored, Scott. That's the problem. Yeah. Like, and then they can start kicking off, like just causing <laughs> drama for the sake of it. <laughs> so I'm doing it, but we're actually we're on this six week challenge. We've got two martial mm-hmm. arts lessons a week, so we're actually learning to kick oh ass God. as well as protect the mind with you. I better watch what I say then. Yeah, watch out because yeah. we're going to learn tomorrow how to kick in the nuts. And, I'm lucky uh, I'm five thousand miles away. We're not that, but like a few hundred miles away. Well, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be on my best behaviour then. Yeah, you better be. Eh? Well, you'll have to be putting that worry postponement on every day. Is it Jeet Kune Do? Jeet Kune Do, yeah. Bruce Lee's philosophical way of fighting, yes. Mm-hmm. Quite good. It's actually his philosoph- His philosophy is really good. Because have you, have you read up about his philosophy at all? My friend Graham gave me his book when I was like 16 or something. Like when I was really young, 
Like I got, I had that book and I read it and I thought, well, this is like philosophy. Yeah. Bruce Lee. He studied philosophy in university. Is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. He, um, he, well, he, he kind of combined, he, he, he liked the Eastern philosophy, but he, he mm-hmm. was born in San Francisco. So he kind of merged the first guy to kind of, he's a Chinese guy, but Western kind of mm-hmm. outlook as well. It's quite good. But yeah, you know, a lot of it crosses over with Stoicism in a way. So you've got a lot yeah. of the um, techniques are similar. Well, I haven't read it for three decades. So I mean, maybe it's time for yeah. to go back and dig it out and read it again. Like, but I remember I liked it. I thought it was good. Well, isn't it true that all, well, all philosophy come from the East, right? Obviously, the Eastern frontier, Greece and stuff, isn't it? Didn't it all kind of come over? Yeah, from, um, I mean, actually, like, you know, most of what we call Greek philosophy, a lot of it came from modern day Turkey. Mm. Like, so the, the Middle East, like Stoic philosophy, um, a lot of it comes from, uh, you know, the Middle East, maybe even as far away as uh, Iraq. The guy that founded it came from Cyprus, hmm. which is like uh, in between, really. Can I? Uh, yeah, like so. Yeah, like it's uh, exciting to learn about ancient philosophy. I'm at, did, I, did we say that was in Athens? I'm in Athens. Like, so we're. I'm surrounded by philosophy. Have you come? Have you come across any aha moments whilst in Athens? Like, oh shit! I didn't notice I was um, read something or not. About philosophy, probably. Well, I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, actually, like about all the time, Scott. Like, I mean, I'm into being my life is just one constant aha moment. Like, that's why I've got that kind of bewildered look sometimes. But <laughs> I, there's a couple of things all the time, like that I figured out. I'll tell you a cool thing I figured out. Actually, this is good because I'll come back to this at the end of the talk. So, there's this thing in Stoicism called the view from above, where you try and picture things from really high above. And there's a famous quote in Marcus Aurelius where he said, the mind free from passions, like the mind having overcome uh, unhealthy passions is like an impenetrable citadel. And I'd read that a lot. And I, I wondered one day, what was the Greek word then that he uses for citadel? Like, and I looked it up and it's Acropolis. And I thought, boom, like, he literally says, it's like the Acropolis, which is just down the road from where I am just now. It looks right. over the city, right? looks over and actually the agora is at the bottom it looks over the agora and he says in another passage imagine you're looking down on agoras and where people are buying and selling things and get married and divorced and arguing in law courts and stuff that all human life is there down in the agora and it's also where socrates was executed like down there so all the drama all the drama happens down there scott like and then what's up on the acropolis is the temple to athena like it's one of my favorite gods. She's essentially like the ancient equivalent of Wonder Woman. Like, yeah. so she's uh, the goddess of wisdom, and so that's a kind of sacred space you got there, and that's very spiritual, like very philosophical. It's dedicated to goddess of wisdom. Every ancient Greek would have been up there for a little bit of walk, like on a Sunday afternoon, they'd have a look down and they'd see Socrates being executed down there, and all the nice. other all the drama unfolding and stuff, and they'd feel themselves spiritually elevated above all the. Uh, worldly affairs that they could see unfolding below them, give them a, like, a perspective, a, a sense of equanimity. Yeah. Well, I'm a, so you must, is that, is it the exact same place? Yeah. So where you stand, you've, everybody else would have stood. Yeah. That's weird, actually. I mean, you could say that about anywhere in the world, but obviously in Athens, sometimes if you're interested in history, you might just stop and think maybe Socrates stood in this very spot yeah. once, right? Or there's this theater 
the remains of an ancient theatre where Socrates allegedly went, and you think maybe Socrates' bum was on this seat. <laughs> well, <laughs> well on this very seat like that I'm sitting well, in. He was. He's around yeah. the town, wasn't he? He was about walking about, causing hard work. He was. Questioning yeah. people's minds. He was questioning. He asked too many questions, and he rocked the boat. And they didn't like that. Some of them, they got some of the people. Some people loved it. Other people got a wee bit upset, a wee bit annoyed, a wee bit put out because he was asking uh, too many questions about powerful people. And then they made him drink hemlock. But <laughs> that's the thing. Well, he, so he was. What, didn't was end it, well. what was a typical Socrates question? Or he like, would say what he would say things like, "What is justice? What is friendship?" His conversation about friendship is interesting. He asks all these questions. What is friendship? He says, do opposites attract? Or does like attract like? Or is friendship, like love and friendship, is it like you're seeking another friend who's like a, a remedy for a, a, a weakness, or something that needs healing within you? So what makes a good friend is somebody who heals your own weakness or vulnerability. And then but Socrates says, well, there's a problem with that because then... If it is like a medicine or a therapy and you, you know, someone is your friend because they've helped you, then once you're better, you no longer have a motive to remain friends with them. So he says, maybe that can't be right. So he asks all these kind of tricky questions about familiar concepts. I actually, he says... On that point, I raised uh -huh. that point with a friend earlier. I said, how many friendship groups have broken down since COVID because they only relied on each other for going on nights out together? Oh, so yeah. has gone. Is there a friendship anymore? It's changed. Like times are changing. I wonder, like when the lockdowns are all over, if everybody's going to go back out and spend so much. I think people aren't going to spend as much money in restaurants and stuff. Nah, they get like, people got in the habit. Like maybe it won't be long before they get back into the habit, though. Yeah, like, it's going to be a slow, slow go back. I think there'll be there might be the first weekend back, and everyone be like, yeah. I wonder if people are looking in their bank accounts, thinking I'm saving a lot of money by not eating out as much. And like, you'd be surprised. Mine people have been spending as well. Uh-huh. Well. Just whatever, maybe home improvements, who knows? Mm -hmm. Do you know, um, have you heard of the philosopher Krishnamurti? Yeah. He, he, I read his book the other day. He came up with an interesting thing. You were talking about there about friendship and is it, is it for mm -hmm. your benefit of them? And he says, when people die, people uh -huh. cry, not for the person who's died, but for them, their own selfish loss. Uh -huh. I was like, shit. I know that's quite deep. I was like, is, that kind of is true in a, in a way. Stoics talk about that as well. Yeah. So they, they talk about that. They say, well, how does mourning or, or weeping benefit the, the person that's gone? Like yeah. They ask that in these consolation letters. Like they get people to really reflect on what mortality and what bereavement are really about in the ancient world. That was a common thing. Like nowadays, we send someone a little card. Like, But in ancient Rome, they'd send you a big, long letter. It was about a kind of a lecture almost on like how you should snap out of it. Like that was a common thing to do. Seneca did that all the time. He was like a pro at it. Like he'd send yeah. people long-winded letters about how they should uh, get over it. Why, like, why, why do you think people now are scared to address the fact that life isn't forever? Do you think that a lot of problems mm. would be solved if people actually realised well, it and lived or not? Well, nobody likes it, so we try and avoid it. And then we live in quite a, what's the expression, sort of sheltered existence, right? where fewer of us are directly caring for elderly people or sick people in our homes and we don't slaughter our, our animals for our own food. 
Like, so death in general is kind of because it makes us uncomfortable. We find, found out ways as a society to screen it off. So that in the ancient world, people slaughtered their own food. Like, you know, they, they saw people dying at home and things like they cared for the elderly and the sick. And so they were far more exposed uh, yeah. to death. And they thought that, you know, they were kind of forced to think about it. But I think the pandemic has made a lot, not everyone, but a lot of people have confronted their own mortality and their issues about death because of the pandemic. And, you know, for some people that's overwhelming and it can be distressing. I mean, for other people, it's very liberating. You know, it makes you think, you know, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. And, you know, that, that scary thought, the next thought that people often have is, you know, all the stuff that you spent your life doing, did you have your priorities right? You know, maybe you were running about after all the wrong things. Yeah. Like uh, cigarettes, whiskey, and wild women, and you know, like or whatever it was that you, you squandered your life on. But yeah. uh, when you have a brush with death, you kind of think, "Geez, you know, maybe I should have been doing something more constructive with my time." And uh, yeah. that could be good. That could be healthy. You know, if you kind of get through it, and it's a wake-up call. Yeah, for sure. I think it, yeah, it's not something that people really say much about, but I definitely when I've raised it with people, it's kind of like, ah, don't, why are you speaking of that? And I'm like, no, I, I find it useful. I find it good to tell myself to make sure I make the most, but it is, it is hard. You know, some people just want to forget about it. So it's, it's a tough one to talk about, isn't it? But what about, so what do you easier think, what do you think is the bigger, like, so if we talk about people's main concerns, is it, do you think worry or is it, would you consider like worry, anxiety in the same kind of, like, does sorting out one knock on affect the other or worry and anxiety? Now, I'll tell you something. Well, let's, let's do a deep dive, Scott, for a minute, like into something, some therapy stuff, right? I think one of the biggest hindrances in personal development and in life in general is that we have a very simplistic way of understanding our emotions. Right. And sometimes psychologists call it the lump theory of emotions. Right. So we talk about anxiety or depression as if it's just a kind of homogenous thing. There's just this thing called depression or anxiety. And now, first of all, that's wrong in two ways. Like, number one, there's lots of different types of anxiety. And so, as a therapist, that's more obvious. You have to recognize that because there's um, things like animal phobias, there's PTSD, there's. Um, uh, social anxiety, there's obsessive compulsive anxiety, there's generalized anxiety, and they work differently and affect people differently and respond to different types of treatment. Um, whereas people normally just kind of mash them all together. And also even within your anxiety, your anxiety is composed of thoughts and actions and feelings that are all kind of go together to make up the big ball that we call anxiety. But if we don't distinguish between different types of anxiety, and if we don't distinguish between um, different aspects of anxiety, then we, we don't have as much control over anxiety or as much insight into it. We just go, oh, that thing over there, like, rather than go, no, there's different bits to it. And I'll talk about that in a minute because there's one distinction in particular between these bits of anxiety and these bits of anxiety, you know, very baby steps, simple, simple distinction that's absolutely essential, uh, I in my view, in my experience, in terms of actually doing something about anxiety and coping better with it. So I, I think we, we live in a culture where actually our vocabulary for talking about our feelings is primitive. Mm -hmm. I, 
and that that's a, a kind of hindrance to us a handicap to us yeah that makes sense does it because emotion yeah like once you start labeling something you box it in didn't you i think um have you heard of robert sapolsky by the way have you heard of him i don't think so uh, he's an expert human biology stress he talks about depression he talks about how we put things into categories all the time as humans and they're kind of like in between the categories there's there's nothing it's either this or that you know what i mean yeah I mean, that is an interesting thing thinking. he talks about the mind in that way that we, we we haven't got those like in between like you've got colors for example red and and blue and in between like what what is that color i don't know what's it called exactly between know. red and what well between... red and blue can he, he says like you've got we got colors and he says we need to be more um, like wider view of stuff and not try and box yeah. anything into a word. I get that. But I also think that it's important. Sometimes categories are, and labels can be also be useful mm. as long as we put things in the right category, <laughs> yeah. right? not in the wrong category. Yeah. Uh, it could be potentially you. Like you might, so a lot of people say, well, in mental health, we attach diagnoses to people and that's labeling. So we're boxing people in, that's a bad thing. Actually, in my experience, a lot of people with mental health problems feel very liberated when they get a diagnosis because they go, oh, I've got PTSD, now I understand and I can find a treatment for it and stuff like that. So, you know, and there's pros and cons to labeling. Like if it's used in the right way, like for many people, it can actually be beneficial. And, uh, you know, even depression, like people being able to label their problem as depression sometimes gives them a way of getting some distance from it. Um, so if they're, they're, they're feeling very self-critical, they can say to themselves, that's just my depression talking. And being able to say that allows themselves to kind of snap out of it a bit, hmm. gives them some cognitive uh, distance. And so it can be uh, helpful sometimes to use labels in the right way. Yeah. But how, so what's your experience of people being able to self-label accurately? Is that possible? In terms of like uh, diagnosis or <laughs> other stuff, like uh, it is possible, but it's kind of tricky. Like sometimes, and sometimes professionals disagree about the right diagnosis. Hmm. And sometimes they kind of overlap a bit anyway. Um, so people, yeah, people often misinterpret. It's easier now that people have access to the internet. Uh, there's misinformation in the internet, but also they can potentially look up some reliable sources like the NHS. There's loads of really good information um, about mental health on the NHS website, right? Um, and so people can sometimes get quite good information and self-diagnose, and then maybe they can, you know, that helps them find a therapist uh, or discuss it with a doctor or a psychiatrist or whatever if they need to. So, um, yeah, there's mislabeling as well. But, yes, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because obviously people are saying now that they've been able to sometimes diagnosis can have to accept reality which is good which is very important i had a mate who self-diagnosed as bipolar and then he became mm -hmm. a self-fulfilling prophecy and he said oh, a manic yeah. episode and it's like when he went to get checks yeah. it was it was just kind of it wasn't then well he might still be he might have diagnosed it wrong but he kind of lived too yeah long. i think that also happens a bit more with certain personality types and mm. people actually have kind of obsessive compulsive personality traits, like might become kind of obsessed with their uh, with a particular label or a, a diagnosis, maybe for a physical health problem. Um, so there's some people that can go, well, like sounds like maybe I've got this and it's not like a, a big deal, but that might be useful to know. And there's other people that become fixated on the label rigidly. And then it can backfire. It can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think it depends how you take it. 
you know, it's like Epictetus said, uh, everything has two handles, a good handle and a bad handle. So diagnosis is a two handles, you know, like either you treat it rigidly and you get kind of tunnel vision and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, or you interpret it more flexibly, like in a more pragmatic way, and then it can be useful. I told my yeah. wee girl that actually, that Epictetus, I tried to teach her about Stoic philosophy. She's only nine. I told her, Epictetus says everything has two handles. And she said, daddy, that's not true. Like, and she took it a bit literally. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, but one day, like, I think she'll remember that and she'll go, that was a good metaphor, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, so, what do you say to? So, obviously, there's a stigma to mental health, and if mental uh-huh. health, obviously, that needs to go over time, and I'm sure there's, it will hopefully happen. What, what were the Stoics saying about, you know, mental health? Were they openly more discussed? discussive about this these things they or? talk about it they actually talk they had they talked about psychotherapy people think freud invented psychotherapy but that's not true my freud actually trained in psychotherapy he went to two different schools in france under charcot and bernheim like but even psychotherapy modern psychotherapy had been around for like 50 years before freud but in, in the ancient world they had psychotherapy they call it a therapia like and uh, they write they had whole books about it um and so they they were kind of, uh, in some respects, like more pragmatic about it than, than we are. Um, they had a, they didn't think it was all repressed castration anxiety or whatever Freud thought it was. Like they just thought it was faulty thinking and bad habits. So they had this more kind of like like cognitive therapists today thought it's pretty down to earth, you know, matter mm. of fact way of under understanding it. Um, yeah, definitely, and you know, and so stoicism, this idea is quite quite central, really. Yeah, that's good. It's, it's it's no wonder that they did have so many breakthroughs in, um, kind of the, all this stuff back end because they were openly discussing it. No matter you know, Epictetus had all types of people coming into his classroom, didn't he? Like, yeah. Um. So you would have had a huge amount of data from that. And, yeah. Yeah, and he didn't. He would say, he, I mean, I'm, I, from Epictetus's books, it looks as if he would take no shit. He was no, things. he definitely he has a unique voice, as people say. Like he comes across as a like a very savage. distinct character, <laughs> savage. Yeah. Like he keeps calling them slaves for a start, which is <laughs> ironic because he was a slave, right? Yeah. But he calls all the students slaves, but most of them are aristocrats. So he's this crippled ex-slave, and all of his students are wealthy Roman nobles, or most of them are and stuff. And he keeps going slaves. Like, because he means that metaphorically, he thinks you guys are all enslaved to your passions. Mm. Like, and somebody, you know, even if they're poor or like, if they are a slave in Roman society, might be more free than you guys are. Like, and Marcus Aurelius says that about the Emperor Nero. He says he was the biggest slave of all, like, because yeah. he was enslaved by his egotism and his greed and stuff like that. Whereas someone like Epictetus was free by comparison. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I like it. How can we, okay, how, how is it possible to control our thoughts? I know, I know we can't really control our thoughts and emotions, but how in control can we get? Is it like we possible to, some of them. Be, to turn them off as they just come in? Is that what we have to do? No, I actually, well, the, one, of, one of the things I'm going to talk about is to distinguish between voluntary and involuntary types of thought. So there are types of thinking that we can control. And then there's other types that are automatic. We can't really control them. We can have a bit of indirect control over them over time. Um, but arguably, in modern therapy, we tend to say we don't really need to control your automatic thoughts anyway. 
funnily enough, they, they, they're not necessarily that harmful. Um, you know, the, yeah. the problem is the way that you respond to them more than the actual thoughts themselves. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's the key, you, really, I think. Do you create the conflict in the mind if you decide to, to meet these thoughts all the time? Is that like what's happening? And the importance that you place on them, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the amount of attention that you give them, the extent to which you dwell on them, that's far more important than the actual thoughts themselves. Hmm. It came as a revelation to psychology. Like we, in the 60s and 70s, psychologists taught clients in therapy to keep a, a record of their automatic negative thoughts. And then they'd talk about it in the therapy session. And it came as a surprise to them. They thought, oh, oh, these people who are depressed and anxious, they have a lot of automatic negative thoughts that pop into their mind. Nobody asked how many automatic negative thoughts do non-anxious, non-depressed people have. They just kind of assumed that maybe they didn't have that many. And then they Mm. did surveys of college students and they found out that they had loads, like hundreds and hundreds of automatic negative thoughts every day. And they thought, well, hang on, this doesn't really make sense. Because we kind of thought maybe... The automatic negative thoughts, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, or whatever that popping out of people's minds. That's what was causing their problems. But it turns out everybody has those. Like, so the difference must be not in the number of the thoughts or the content of them necessarily, but it's more in the way that we respond to them, uh, how we deal with them, and uh, the importance that we attribute to them. What about recurring negative thoughts, the same old over and over? They're not necessarily harmful as long as we uh, respond to them in, in the right way. Um, they don't have to, a lot of people have uh, recurring negative thoughts, but they gain distance from them, detachment. They don't necessarily uh, have to be a big problem. And also the more detached you are in a roundabout way, often the thoughts become less recurring in the future anyway. The thing, if you really want to give yourself a problem, like the thing to do would be to try really hard not to think about something, right? Because obviously that's impossible, right? So if you if you try really hard not to think of a, a, a panda, right? For you could maybe do it if you put a lot of effort in by concentrating on something else, but you can't do it permanently, mm. right? And the more you try not to think of a panda, like the more recurring the thought's going to become. There's going to be what psychologists sometimes call a rebound effect. Like, so you'll end up thinking more and more about pandas as a result. And it also takes a lot of effort to try really hard not to think about pandas, right? So if you have a recurring negative thought and your way of dealing with it is to try and block it from your mind, it's not going to work, buddy. Like, it's the wrong strategy. Like, it's going to have the opposite of the desired effect. Mm. Like, and that's a very common thing that people do, though. And often that's what people with mental health problems are driving themselves kind of crazy trying to do. Makes sense. What do you think of this kind of reminds me? So, you know, Max, Ma, Dr. Mark, well, Maltz, who wrote... Psycho-Cybernetics, dude. He's so... It's kind of interesting. He says that human beings are goal machines because we were hunter-gatherers back in the day. And uh-huh. I'm not sure if this is right, that we're able to... If we do actually specify the goal, mm-hmm. um, we can laser in on it. But if we're very just... We, we, don't speci- we don't, like, win. But if we always focus on the negatives, he says, it's the same thing. You keep going and basically yeah. achieving those negatives because we are basically hunter-gatherers, wow. hunting and gathering. So Like a lot of self-help literature, it's not dated that well because there's modern psychologists that kind of say the opposite. Um, and he he's half right. like a lot of like a lot of people he's half right <laughs> like half being half right 
sometimes is a problem. That's like, uh, you know, a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Yeah. And so he's kind of right that if you have clear goals, clearly, of course, it makes them easier to achieve. That's what he's, his thing is. If you have a clear self-image and a clear idea of who you want to be, it makes it more uh, achievable. Like, and uh, that could be healthy. But there's a downside to goal-focused thinking. And that is that it tends to keep your mind in a state of suspense, like because you become focused on the, you know, the uh, what's the expression I'm looking for? Um, you become dissatisfied with the your current uh, condition if you become too attached to future goals, and so that we now know that that can actually be quite unhealthy. So people with generalized anxiety and people with depression are often quite goal focused. Um, and sometimes they set unrealistic goals. So depressed people, like one of the many very simple things that depressed people do, and just knowing this alone can be helpful, right? Like I've, over the years, some of the things I've found that have helped me the most personally are just really simple little aha moments or insights. So one of them is I, I used to keep a record uh, every day of what I spent my time doing every half hour segment within the day. And I'd look at what my goals were for the day and what I actually spent my time doing. One of the first things I noticed is that pretty much every day, the goals I was setting were unrealistic. Mm. Like, I always kind of was aiming to get more done each day than was, you know, than I ever achieved, than was realistic. It's always kind of the end of the day felt quite frustrated. And people with depression do that. They set unrealistic, unachievable goals for themselves often and then beat themselves up because they don't achieve them. And you maybe find that like in, in fitness as well. It, you get this with all or enough, nothing thinking. So some clients that come into therapy and maybe depressed clients in many cases, you know, they kind of want to be cured after the first session is a common thing, right? And yes. so then they're not cured after the first session, they get disappointed and throw the towel in on the whole process. And you think if only you were a little bit more patient, like, and took it in steps and stages, then you would have achieved progress and achieved your goal. And it might be like that with people that go to the gym and if they don't achieve their goals within a week, then they quit, perhaps. Yeah. The valley of despair. Yeah, yeah. go down there and go back to step one. Need patience. Yes. It's interesting. What do you think about thoughts versus beliefs? And do our beliefs reinforce our thoughts? Or is it that our beliefs make us react to these negative thoughts? I think it's a circular relationship between our beliefs and our thoughts. I think uh, the thoughts that we have potentially like reinforce our underlying beliefs and uh, the underlying beliefs that we have give rise to individual thoughts that pop into our, our mind um and then also well okay let's get let's we'll get a little bit technical for a minute i'm going to use a big word scott i'm not right? wait 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 wait, wait. Let me brace myself right okay. meta you're gonna like it though right i know you like that you like the occasional multi-syllabic word right like a, and this is a good one metacognitive metacognitive i'm just gonna drop that one it's the mic drop metacognitive like so cognitive means to do with thinking and metacognitive means thinking about thinking, basically. So you can have beliefs about beliefs, right? You have beliefs about a lot of things, Scott. You've got yeah. beliefs, yeah, you've got uh, beliefs about Scotland. Yeah, I like, you've got beliefs about kebabs, as we know. <laughs> like, you've got beliefs about think exercise, like yeah. your favorite football team. But you also have beliefs about the very nature of belief itself. So we're talking about it right now. Yeah. You've got uh, beliefs about how much control you have over your thoughts. You've got 
beliefs about whether thoughts are harmful or not. And those are metacognitive beliefs. So actually in therapy, we spend a lot of time talking about beliefs about beliefs, metacognitive beliefs. And so you can have beliefs about the nature of thought, right? So if I've got obsessive compulsive disorder and I have thoughts that pop into my mind, like, um, you know, someone with OCD might have thoughts, uh, wouldn't it be terrible if I suddenly shouted out a swear word in the middle of the street? They might think, right? And then they might think, if I keep having that thought, maybe eventually I'll do it and I could get myself into trouble. So now they think these automatic thoughts about yelling crazy stuff out in the street, those thoughts could be dangerous. Like maybe those thoughts could influence my behavior, right? Mm. And uh, the, that's kind of circular because if you believe the thoughts are dangerous, you believe they could influence your behavior, then potentially you make the thoughts more problematic, more troubling. Um, whereas if you have a different attitude and you think, so it's just a thought, doesn't mean anything. Like I could just ignore it, like, like probably most people do. Like you might walk down the street and think, what if I shout out bollocks at a policeman? And you might think, well, it's not going to make me do it. I'm not going to do it just because the thought popped into my mind, right? But someone with OCD might panic. Maybe think, maybe I'm going to do it. Maybe I'm going to do it. I have to suppress that thought and kind of try and control it somehow. And the difference is metacognition. Like there's one guy that thinks intrusive thoughts about crazy behavior are dangerous. And there's another guy that thinks they're trivial. Like they, they, they can't harm me. Like, and it's the metacognition that's really the underlying problem in many cases. Like, so we, we have a whole type of therapy that was developed in, in sunny England in Manchester, oh. uh, I believe, um, by uh, a psychologist uh, called uh, Wells, Professor Wells. Um, I've forgotten the guy's first name. What's that? David Wells? I've forgotten. I'll come back to me in a second. Uh, Adrian Wells. Adrian Wells. And uh, it's called metacognitive therapy. And it's a state of the art. We're not mucking about here. We're doing state of the art. CBT here, this is state of the art uh, in CBT now over the past like 15, 20 years. That's relatively modern though. Like, so looking at those underlying beliefs about the nature of thought and belief itself is, is seems to be where it's at in many regards. What do you think about thought, thoughts come from memory? If you had no memory, you'd have no thoughts. That's kind of true, I guess, but everybody has memories pretty much. Like, doesn't doesn't it then mean for you to have different thoughts? Maybe you need to have different positive memories. Are we saying that? Can we say that? We change your memories. You can change memories. Change. Actually, one of the things that we know is when if people keep reviewing their memories, they tend to kind of um, how would you put like the more you think about events in the past, the, this is a big problem actually, and a kind of notorious problem in psychology and in policing. It's a big problem. Like, so it's a problem of repeated review. So if you go over events in the past over and over and over again, um, you, you'll tend to kind of rewrite it a little bit each time as your memories get distorted through frequent recall. That's a big problem for police interviewing, like, uh, particularly if they're interviewing people about events that have happened a long time ago. So you have to interview people to gather information, but the more you interview them, the more you tend to distort the information that you're gathering. So it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of tricky. It's a big problem in psychotherapy because psychotherapists used to believe that if they kind of hypnotized people and regressed them, or if they just asked them a lot of questions about stuff that happened in the past, they could recover memories about past events. And actually what the research generally shows is that that's very unreliable. And that often by doing that, 
you're, you're more likely to distort memory or even for people to recall things that, that never actually happened. So you can, you can really mess up people's memories in psychotherapy if you're not careful. And that, that's one of the reasons that often we take a simpler approach to memory now, or we tend to just focus on how people are coping in the, in the present moment. Yeah, this is a good question with Natalie. What, what about thoughts based on events that never happened? So thoughts about a thought that never came oh to be goodness. becoming the memory. <laughs> there are, these, are some, these, are, these are not like the usual run-of-the-mill run questions we're getting tonight, Scott. Yeah, we're, we're like, tonight. We've got all the philosophers in the audience. Thoughts <laughs> about things that didn't actually happen. Is that the yeah. question? Yeah. That's a hard so one. Yeah. Because can, can you form a memory of something that didn't happen, but you thought so? Yeah, you can. There's a famous, like, actually a research, there's a bunch of weird, there are many weird research studies that psychologists have done, weird experiments, right? You wouldn't believe some of the stuff that psychologists do. But there's one where they got people and they asked them about, they interviewed them about whether they'd met certain characters at Disneyland and one of the ones they asked them about was, I can't remember who it was exactly, but it was like Scooby-Doo or something, right? And uh, they kind of led them to believe that they'd uh, uh, seen Scooby-Doo at Disneyland like, and asked some questions about it. Like, that had you, did you ever see Scooby-Doo when you were at Disneyland? And like, you know, what was that like? And they were like, I'm not really sure. Like, now I think about it, yeah, maybe I did, maybe I did. But Scooby-Doo wouldn't be allowed anywhere near Disneyland, Scott, <laughs> as you know, because that wasn't, a, that was a Hanna-Barbara, or whatever they call it, like it wasn't a Disney character, right? He would be marched off of the premises in summary fashion, like if he ever set foot within the sacred precincts of Disneyland. Like, but people, a large percentage of people came out of the experiment thinking, I think I did see Scooby-Doo at Disneyland. <laughs> like, even though we know that that's impossible. Yeah. Unless they were crazy. taking those drugs that you mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. Those Maybe drugs. those drugs will do that. that to you. They would like, have become Scooby-Doo in that regard, probably. Yeah. So people, what psychologists know is that you can get people to believe things and, and remember things that never happened for sure. And that, again, it's a problem in psychotherapy. Uh, that is a people, problem, mind, isn't it? That is a you, big problem. Especially with hypnosis, right? So if, you, if you're doing things that make memories more vivid, you can create false memory. We call it false memory syndrome. It's like a well-known problem. Um, there was a, bit, a lot of scandals about it in the 1980s because therapists used to do this a lot more and then people started suing them like, because they were like, oh, I now remember stuff that never actually happened. Uh, so yeah, like, you know, Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Well, it's, there's, a, there's a good question here because I know you've written an article on this, how to be a stoic on social media. So there's yeah. a question on... How would Donald, how do you view how to deal with the anxieties fueled by social media? Well, first of all, I would say the thing not to do is don't avoid social, because people are like, well, get off the social media and don't, well, for sure, you know, moderate the amount of time that you spend on it. But if you avoid going on social media because it upsets you or whatever, the problem with avoidance as a strategy is that you'll never actually develop the coping skills that would allow you to deal with the thing that's upsetting you. And so on the one hand, don't overwhelm yourself by putting yourself in a, a situation that's causing you stress or uh, you know, doing something that you don't want, making you angry or whatever. But if you just avoid it, you're missing an opportunity to strengthen your character. And so you know, the thing to do, I think fundamentally the thing to do is to see it as a kind of training opportunity, almost like you're 
picking a sparring partner. So, and that could be people trolling you, or it could be, I mean, to be honest, the news media are pretty much, like now are pretty much trolling you. Like they're just trying to freak you out a lot of the time with alarmist news and propaganda left and right all across the board. These, um, the news outlets and the social media, you get distorted fake news and you get alarmist stuff. I did a search the other day actually in CNN and, and Fox of how many headlines there were where it was Don Lemon is shocked or, you know, Tucker Carlson disgusted or whatever. Like, they're all reacting to yeah. stuff. They love saying that something's shocking. Like, they, so they're encouraging alarmist thinking rather than, hmm, what should we, so what should we actually do about this thing? Like, problem-solving thinking. And so the trick is really, you know, it, it's like, view it as an opportunity for developing your skills Right? You have to go into it with the right attitude, with the goal of becoming better at coping with it. I think that's a fundamental thing. The motivation has to be there to treat it as an opportunity to develop your own coping abilities. And that's the starting point. And then you've got to right. think about how will you develop those coping abilities? Like, what's a better way of dealing with these people and the, and the media outlets and stuff that are provoking you? Uh, and, you know, some of the techniques that we'll talk about, cognitive diffusion and things like that, can help the view from above, can help, um, I think. So, so would you say something like go on social media at certain time periods and if you go on it, yeah. or would you say every 15 minutes you must, you know, practice coming off or would you? Yeah, that's one way of doing it. And the other thing, or the other thing I like to do is I... I People are going to think this is weird. There's many things I do that people think are a little bit weird, but I time a lot. So I time myself to my, my best friend is my stopwatch, right? So I saw your article on it. You do a lot of your writing. I do a lot of timing yeah. things. Like it's my yeah. it's my kind of like behavioral psychology coming out. Like so, I think if you're kind of like watching how long you're spending on social media and kind of like just with one eye on the number of seconds or minutes that are passing that kind of stops you from getting as immersed in it. Because you start been doing this for like 10 minutes now. That's crazy. 10 minutes is actually a really long time. Whereas if you're not watching the time, you could spend hours getting engrossed in irrelevant, crazy stuff. Like people lose, one of the most interesting and understudied phenomena, I think in psychology is the human ability to lose track of time, right? Everybody knows it. Everybody does it, Scott. Like sometimes time slows down, like you're in the dentists or whatever. It seems yeah. like the minutes are dragging, right? Or you're bored. Other times it flies past, right? But the ability to lose track of time, I think, is, is something that we could study more. And uh, an example would be worrying. Like when people are worrying, for sure, that's a perfect example of a brain state when people tend to lose track of time. Like So minutes turn into hours when people are engrossed in worry or morbid rumination. But noticing how much time is passing, right? Here's just a little tip. It doesn't work for everybody, but for a lot of people, simply timing it, like noticing how much time has passed, kind of snapped you out of it. That yeah. alone, like you can have spent three and a half minutes worrying now. That alone could make you you kind of like disengage from your worry. Whereas if you don't notice it, it could go on for hours. Yeah, you're right. When you say that about timing, uh, you, you've probably heard of the Pomodoro technique, yeah, where you do 25-minute timers. When I do that for writing and stuff, it goes by quite slow because I'm like, mm -hmm. i got to type for 25 minutes. 25 minutes on social media is literally 
10 seconds. Yeah. It is crazy. What's, but, but don't you think, though, like, isn't going on social media playing with fire because it's so addictive? Especially yes. TikTok, for example. That's built to keep it. It is on. playing with fire. Like, yeah. But we have to play with fire, Scott. I like, like it. Okay. Because it, that's, life is warfare, Scott. Like, and we're surrounded by these things. So you won't get anywhere by avoiding uh, temptation and avoiding provocation and uh, avoiding threats. But you have to know your limits, right? It's like the sparring analogy. Like, so if you never go in the ring and spar, you're never really going to develop your fighting skills because you guys are doing martial arts and stuff, right? You know, you're not going to get that good at martial arts like if you never actually spar anybody. Like, you know, that's when you're, you're, you're going to test your ability and improve it. But if you pick people that are twice your size and much faster and better than you, you're just going to get your, you know, your bum kicked yeah, every time. Yeah. Like, and uh, so you need to kind of, and how do you figure out like what your limits are? Well, based on your previous experience, like mm. through trial and error and everyone's different. Like, so what's overwhelming for me might be easy peasy for you. Like, so, you, but you learn that by studying yourself through uh, trial and error and looking back and reviewing your past experience. That's what the Stoics say. Like, and so you need to, because they say this, obviously the Stoics say you should expose yourself to challenging situations um, and rather than running away and hiding from them, but you shouldn't bite off more than you can chew. Like, so with social media, like a limited amount of controlled exposure like so if you're playing with fire and you find you go on it and, and you're just getting sucked in and getting addicted to it then maybe you're doing it too much and in that case you should limit it like yeah. but learn to to limit it in such a way that you can do it more mindfully and with greater self-control i like it moderation is what i mean moderation and everything as we say <laughs> like in greece nothing in excess yes made in agan I remember the Greek this time. Like, that's, uh, that means nothing too much. It's true, isn't it? So easy, but so hard at the same time. It's one of those, it's one of those things that we know you... is easy. There's a good question here for you. Uh -huh. What do you think about social comparison theories? Since existence, humans have tried to establish their own position in hierarchies. People often get stuck in thinking about this when comparing themselves yes. to others on social media and lose time uh, doing so. Yeah, 100%. Like, I mean, I don't know so much about the psychological research in, in general and social psychology, but I know insofar as that impinges on, on my, my little area of cognitive therapy, like people with generalized anxiety disorder, and I think also clinical depression, if I remember rightly, are known to engage more in what we call upward comparisons. So to compare themselves to people who are more successful or better off than them or wealthier, and it's arbitrary, right? Because yeah. you could be comparing yourself to Steve Jobs or whoever. Yeah. Like, you might think, oh, I'm lucky because at least I'm still alive, right? But as someone, yeah. Jeff Bezos then, like, yeah. you might Elon think, Musk. I'm never going to have as much money as him. Oh, Elon Musk's got loads of money. Like, and, uh, you know, that's an upward comparison. But you could be making downward comparisons and think, geez, there's a lot of people in the world that can't even read or write. Like, and, they, you know, they don't have access to medicine, you know, and they, you know, they're much worse off than me. Like, it's people, Scots, people that have to live in Scotland. Like, where oh. you're just, oh, can you imagine what that would be like? You know, it rains all the time. Yeah. Like, in the west coast of Scotland, where I grew up. Actually, it's been a long time since I've been there. I'm looking forward to going back sometime. Statue, there's statues there for you and stuff now, I heard. Big mm, statues. There's, there's a big statue there for you. Of me. And, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Biggie. I should go back then, shouldn't I? You can't compare yeah. your statue to other statues, though, because then you're going to be... That could, it's, it's, about, it's about this big. It's just all. It's just happening. Okay, an inferiority complex then. <laughs> but the, you can make your... Like, there's things that we do habitually, generally across the board, and then... And the Stoics were aware of this. And then you can do the opposite, but it often takes just a little... Maybe just a modicum more effort, right? So mm. we're always making up with comparisons. But if we can learn to make a little bit of effort, if we notice that's a problem... Might only take a little bit of effort to pause and go, what if I make a downward comparison? I can do that. That's easy, easy peasy if I, I remember to do it. So if you can set up cues and remind yourself to do it and practice doing it, it'll become it becomes a bit of a habit. And it really is powerful. It balances things out. It reminds me of another thing that the Stoics say, Marcus Aurelius said, um, if you imagine absent things as if they were present, right? So you don't have a Ferrari but you imagine what it would be like if you did have a Ferrari. It makes you desire things. And he says that kind of causes craving and suffering because you, you think, I don't have this thing, but uh, mm. imagine what it would be like if I did have it. And Marcus says, it's like, you know, we all do that instinctively. We're always imagining things that we don't have and yeah. how it would be better if we had them and stuff. But he says, what if you did the opposite, which requires just a little bit more effort and you imagine the absence of things that are present in order to experience gratitude. So you imagine what it'd be like if you didn't have electricity or yeah. a fridge or central heating or a roof over your head. Like, and it seems kind of trite in a way, but I do that. Like one of the things I've most personally, I find most helpful in life is literally just imagining what it'd be like if you didn't have a house and a roof and stuff like that. What about, you know, if, you, what about if you didn't have that shirt? If I didn't have that shirt and I had yeah. to just wear a gray kind of- I think that will be it. That'd be, that would be my whole personality <laughs> gone in a flash. I depend on the shirt. You like, depend on it. I like yeah. I like that though, because nobody actually does that. So people say this is a problem with the grateful stuff. I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for. But they don't actually think about if they did lose what they say in they're grateful for. They're just saying, I'm grateful for clothes. And then they go, well, what if you were not no clothes? You woke up. What would it be know? like if you didn't have them? I used to think about this all the time when I lived in Canada. Um, in the winter and it was we had feet of snow outside and I think geez man it was only like a hundred years ago and people had to live in a little wooden shed with a candle and nothing to read except the bible you know and I, all winter long like with the snow outside I can't imagine what that would be like you know, now we have the internet and Netflix and stuff like that you know it's not really you so used to say people say well the, the winter's quite long it's quite severe in Canada you're like, yeah but you've got Netflix like so you, you know you just stay indoors and you've got the internet you've got the world's libraries at your disposal it's not really a big deal actually but it would have been in the past even yeah. 50 years ago it would have been a lot, like a lot harder to to cope with that um so i think about that and think geez we're so lucky you know we are we are very lucky we have we are, I, I keep i keep saying this like to people i speak to in real life stuff i do go extreme and i'm like i could be you know in a concentration camp trapped and I could literally I'd be have no control but I'm trapped in a, in a flat and I got the internet and I'm speaking to the Scottish Socrates you know what I mean it's yes stuff. imagine if you didn't have me Scott you'd be having this conversation on your own imagine I'd have it talking to yourself I'd be making stuff up probably making yeah. up theories and stuff I think I'd be coming up with a load of books I reckon after this oh you'd, then you'd be rich yeah, <laughs> yeah I'd be so. like the next Freud Fleer the next Freud <laughs> you see what happens so I I had some slides about worrying stuff. Do you want me to do? Too much? Do you want me to go through that? Yeah. Well, first, do you think it's do you think it's going to be useful? 
I think so. Like, will yeah. I throw them up? Like, yeah. throw them um, up. Whilst you're throwing them up, do you, um, do you want to answer, do Stoics believe in karma? No, they don't. They don't. Ooh. They believe a lot of things, but they don't really believe in karma, actually. Interesting. Well, they don't mention it anyway. That's... Well, let me um, put you on. Not an... are, you, are you on full screen now? Hold on. What am I doing? Yeah. Um, One day I'll tell you a lot of the other crazy kind of metaphysical beliefs that the Stoics had. Like some of them are really interesting, but uh, not that one. Well, Have you got that first slide, Scott? I can see it, the bird's eye view, yeah? So everybody, are you paying attention to the slides? Not anymore. Right. Yeah, I can see um, I can see the main screen now. Live like Louise, getting ready to do Stoicism and stop worrying. I like it. Stop worrying, get ready to do Stoicism, stop worrying. So I'll do a little intro and talk about what is Stoicism and then we'll talk about Stoicism and worrying. So Batman, obviously, like, so that's not what we mean by Stoicism. Like the first thing to say about Stoicism is what it isn't. So a lot of people all over the internet, it's a lot of misinformation about Stoicism. And that's because we use the word Stoicism with a lowercase s to refer to this idea of suppressing or concealing emotions, like being unemotional. So we call that lowercase Stoicism. And capital S Stoicism, like in the Oxford English Dictionary, it will tell you, um, refers to this ancient Greek school of philosophy founded by Zeno of Citium. And so they're two different things. One's an unemotional coping style, like having a stiff upper lip. The other's an ancient Greek school of philosophy. And that's important because there's a body of research that shows that lowercase Stoicism is actually quite unhealthy. Like it's the opposite of resilience. It's bad for you psychologically. Whereas capital S Stoicism is the inspiration for cognitive therapy which we know from large body of research is actually very good for you. Mm. So the founders of cognitive therapy said, Albert Ellis and R&T Beck, Ellis said many of the principles incorporated in the theory of rational emotive psychotherapy, the first form of cognitive therapy in the 1950s are not new. Some of them in fact were originally stated several thousand years ago, especially by the Greek and Roman Stoic philosophers. And Beck, um, who kind of founded the more scientific, uh, scientifically validated form of cognitive therapy in the 60s and 70s. He said the philosophical origins of cognitive therapy can be traced back to those pesky Stoic philosophers. Mm. And who were they? Well, the three most famous ones were Seneca the Younger, who John Malkovich, uh, I like to throw in a lot of trivia, like make this bit more interesting. Like you won't get this in your average academic lecture, but John Malkovich is making a movie about Seneca. I think it's called On Earthquakes because he wrote a book about earthquakes and that's coming out maybe in the next year or two. So Seneca was the, one of the finest writers of antiquity and he was the rhetoric teacher and speech writer to the emperor Nero. Epictetus is the most famous Roman teacher of philosophy. He was a former slave. So the opposite end of society, he became a famous teacher. And then Marcus Aurelius was... Uh, the emperor of Rome, and yet he was a follower of the writings of Epictetus. Um, he never met him in person. Epictetus died in Greece when Marcus Aurelius was about 12 or 13 years old at Rome. So they hadn't met, they just missed each other. Uh, but Marcus Aurelius read Epictetus' writings, Epictetus's writings and he followed them uh, religiously. And there is, Scott knows what movie that is. I oh, think. I see Gladiator. It. Hold on, let me have a look. You see it? Uh, it's Lord of Death. Ah, yes. Not Lord, it's Lord of the Rings. 
That's Santa that's Claus. Gladiator. No, that's Santa Claus, is it? It's Santa <laughs> Claus. <laughs> it's um that that's Marcus Aurelius played by Richard Harris, and there's Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe now looks more like Marcus Aurelius. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't know how long ago was Gladiator must have been like 20 years you know, ago. Like 20 years ago or something like that. Yeah. So I think Russell Crowe's just like turning more into Marcus Aurelius now. <laughs> and no offense, it like you know, he just happens to look uh, more like Marcus yeah. Aurelius. Socrates uh, was the inspiration for Stoicism. So let's do a little quick deep dive into Socratic philosophy. So there's this argument in Socrates that's the inspiration for really the core of Stoicism. So in one of Plato's dialogues, Plato writes these dialogues about Socrates, who was his teacher, and uh, it's called the Euthydemus. And in it, Socrates asks his friend, his interlocutor, the guy he's talking to, like Scott here, is my interlocutor. Yeah, right. He says to him, what is good fortune? And Socrates was known for asking these kind of rhetorical no-brainer questions. Oh, it seemed so anyway. So the guy he's talking to says, that's a silly question, Socrates. Good fortune is having, you know, a beautiful wife or girlfriend, having lots of money, you know, having the, like, the fanciest columns in your house you know, having the best job, uh, all, all of these things, having, you know, health, good looks, you know, that's good fortune. Everyone knows what good fortune consists in. And Socrates says, well, let's take each of those things in turn and let's start with wealth. And he says, surely wealth is a good thing if it's in the hands of somebody who's wise and virtuous, and then they could do lots of cool things with it, right? His friend says, yeah, sure. But what happens if you give lots of money to somebody who's foolish and vicious, like, what happens if you give it to a genocidal tyrant? Like, give it, they surely they, they would just allow them to do lots of bad things, right? So his friend reluctantly agrees with this. And Socrates says, surely, therefore, money is simply an opportunity to exert more control over the world. And whether it's good or bad depends on the use that you make of it. So in itself, it's neither good nor bad. It's neutral. Like, what matters is the character of the person that's using it. And so his friend says, well, I guess you're right, Socrates. And Socrates says, well, I've got a surprise for you, buddy. The same thing's true of everything else that you mentioned. <laughs> like, I'll save you going through the entire list. Like, he says, you've listed a lot of external goods or advantages, but none of them are intrinsically good. Like, they're only potentially good if used well. And so Socrates says, so the missing ingredient that makes them all good or bad is your attitude and character. Like, so therefore, perhaps the only truly intrinsically good thing is moral wisdom or the strength of character to use things consistently well in life. And he, even, he goes even deeper into this paradox, Scott. And he says, even the deprivation of these external advantages could be good if they're used well. So even in some cases, someone might suffer poverty, they might lose their job, might be the best thing that ever happens to them if they learn how to use it to their advantage, right? So maybe hardship, suffering difficulty and persecution like Socrates did, might actually be something he learns from and uses to his advantage if he's very wise and self-disciplined and has a strength of character. So Stoics say it's kind of smoke and mirrors. It's an illusion that people think that all the things we run after are what life is all about, but it's, it's kind of a big con in a way. And really, you have to look within. Happiness comes from within, and what matters is the way that you use your experiences. And so all the, everything except wisdom, they say, in a sense, is, is indifferent or neutral. It matters as the use that you make of it. Mm. And so that's really the, the cornerstone of Stoic philosophy. And that leads on to a lot of interesting observations about how we learn wisdom and how we learn to use things 
well in life. So I'm going to mention some other things that Socrates says just as a little digression in a way to show you that Socrates kind of preempted the Stoics and he was the kind of forefather of them. So in the Republic, he's talking about the Greek tragedies in Plato's Republic. And he says to his interlocutor, this time it's Plato's uh, elder brother, Glaucon. And he says, look, the wise man is resilient. Wise man or woman is resilient in the face of adversity. And uh, so Glaucon says, well, how is that? Okay, Socrates, what does he do? And Socrates says, there's four things that make someone who's wise more emotionally resilient in the face of adversity. And Glaucon says, well, what are they? And Socrates says, well, number one, the wise person tells themselves when they lose their job or their partner breaks up with them or something bad happens, they stub their toe, whatever it is, like, we cannot be certain whether events that befall us will turn out to be good or bad for us ultimately. Because, number one, there are many reversals of fortune in life. Like, so you might lose your job, but then you end up getting a better job. Or your partner breaks up with you, then you meet someone even better. Like, so the Greek tragedies were all about this. You might win the lottery and think that's amazing, but then you blow all on hard drugs, like, and get surrounded by hangers-on, maybe the worst thing that ever happens to you. So there are many paradoxes in life and many reversals of fortune. And Socrates says the wise person reserves judgment about whether something is ultimately good or bad until they've seen the bigger picture. And number two, as we mentioned a moment ago, whether something's good or bad depends, depends on the use that you make of it. So Socrates would say, well, you know, these events that befall us, we can't be certain whether they're good or bad because it depends how we use them also. Like, so the wise person says, we can't be certain whether something's going to benefit us or harm us. We need to keep an open mind about that. And that prevents them from freaking out, complaining, getting anxious and worrying uh, prematurely about things. And Glaucon said, well, what's number two then? And Socrates said, well, the second thing is that the wise person tells themselves we gain nothing by grieving excessively, but we merely add another layer or level to our suffering by doing that. So something bad happens, it's already painful, like when we grieve and worry, we're just adding even more suffering on top. And so a wise person would tell themselves, why would we suffer even more than we are already? Why would we amplify mm. our suffering? It doesn't make sense. And Glaucon says, well, what's the third thing, Socrates? You said there were four. And Socrates says, well, number three is that the wise person tells themselves that no individual setbacks are all important in the grand scheme of things because they're always only one event within a bigger picture. Like the view from above and so a wise person always looks at the bigger the broader context the bigger picture like and so you know there might be something bad that happens but there's other good things going on in your life at the same time or there will be in the future but when we get really upset we tend to respond as if the individual event is like the whole story like it's all or nothing and so he says nothing no individual event is that all important no individual event is the whole story like when we view the whole story, it's more mixed, it's more balanced, right? So our emotions are more complex and nuanced. And so Glaucon says, well, Socrates, you said there were four things. And Socrates said, well, actually, number four is the most important of all. And Glaucon says, well, what's that, Socrates? And Socrates says, well, the wise person tells himself that getting really upset, grieving is the Greeks, is anachronistically, we, we kind of phrase it, grieving or complaining or freaking out, as we say today, prevents us from doing the thing that's most important in the face of a crisis. And what's that? And Socrates says, well, it's to think clearly and rationally in order to solve the problem in front of us, because when we're freaking out, 
We can't think rationally. So actually the most important thing we can do when we're faced with a genuine problem is to keep rational, calm and rational if we're going to solve the problem and not allow our emotions to blind us. Because we know that when we get really upset, anxious or angry, it introduces lots of cognitive biases. There's lots of research that shows that our, we become poorer at problem solving when we're angry or, or anxious. Well, yeah, stress stress is shown to stop, uh, inhibit your front... Am I, am I gonna get, get this right? Inhibit the frontal cortex in a way, makes it, well, not inhibit it completely, makes it less um, sharp in a way. Yeah, big like, yeah. We tend to think you know, in, in generalizations and we jump prematurely to conclusions and all yeah. these kind of thinking errors that we, we tend to occur when we're under stress. Yeah. Um, especially when we're getting wound up about it while worrying and stuff. So the, the main technique of stoicism is this thing called the dichotomy of control. And it says some things are up to us and other things are not. So you may think, well, that's obvious. That's like saying some things are big and other things are small. Why, you know, but it's, that, that seems like a platitude. But the Stoics think, but people forget this and they blur the distinction between what's up to us and what's not. So just to refer back to something we were talking about earlier, I said, when we're anxious or depressed, we have this lump theory of emotion. We just talk about anxiety, depression as if it's one thing. But maybe there are bits of anxiety that are up to us and other bits that are not. Like, and we'd want to kind of draw a line down the middle and separate, sort like sorting the wheat from the chaff. We'd want to sort them into two categories so that we can think more clearly about how to deal with our emotions. That would be a really simple, really basic thing that would make a big difference. So, so Epictetus, when he says this, is really talking about a distinction between what we do, our voluntary actions, and what merely happens to us or everything else, basically. Hmm. So who's that? Is that Robbie you Williams? You didn't expect to see Robbie Williams today, did you? Oh my God, he's looking handsome. He's a handsome fella, that Robbie Williams. That's too and busy. he's got... This is, this is too much for a Monday night on all this. He's got, he's got a lot of tattoos. And so Hi. one of them says, grant me the serenity. So, so he's, it's a reference to the serenity prayer. Which I think I, he, he, I saw the thing he was repeating it on before he went on stage. So Serenity Prayer is used in Alcoholics Anonymous and yeah. other related uh, organizations. And uh, it's very similar to Stoicism. It says, God grant me the serenity. Or he says, Elvis grant me the serenity. But God grant me the serenity to accept the things, that's what his tattoo says, to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference between what's up to me and what isn't, or what I can change and what I can't change. Hmm. So wisdom to know the difference between the bits of anxiety that I can change and the bits of anxiety that are involuntary, not in my control, would be one example of that. But really, it's a very general idea. Um, this, is, this is a plug, Scott. Oh, like, I like it. Shameless plug for my graphic novel oh, that yeah. I'm working on. Am I featured so, in it at all or what? You could be like I've got some people. I've got like so some of my friends are in it. Like <laughs> the illustrator doesn't like it when I do that because he says it's harder to draw people from like uh, he's not he's not as good at that. Like he's better at just making up the faces. But I've got a long list of people. Like I, I want all oh, like I want my auntie in it and my friend in it and my buddy's <laughs> going to be a centurion. And, like, so there's a long list of people that want to be in these graphic novels. But this is a bit of a story about uh, a Stoic philosopher who was on a ship that nearly sank. It's told by a Roman author called Aulus Gellius, right? 
And this guy was on a ship and he saw this stoic and they all nearly drowned and everyone was freaking out like crazy. They were all running around, waving their arms in the air like that, going woo, 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 right? And then they were lucky and they got to shore and they all survived. This was a common hazard in the ancient world, sailing between Rome um, or the, uh, the port uh, on the Italian coast um, uh, and sailing across the Adriatic uh, from Brindisium to, uh, to Greece. Uh, to Nicopolis, I think, uh, is where they, they arrived. And so they would get caught in storms and it was risky. And Aulus Gellius says to this Stoic philosopher, famous Stoic philosopher, and he says, listen, I saw you on the boat and you're a Stoic, I recognize you. But um, you weren't running around going woo-woo-woo and screaming and praying to Poseidon for mercy and all that kind of stuff, but you did look kind of pale. And you were turning a bit green at one point and you were kind of like shaking and you weren't very quiet, buddy. So I thought you Stoics were meant to be impervious to stuff like that, right? So people say, I thought you were meant to be unemotional, but you were kind of freaking out there. And the guy said, well, to be fair, even a seasoned sailor would be stressed under those conditions because it looked like we were all about to die. And he said there are automatic emotional responses that are reflex-like and natural. And Stoics accept those. They don't struggle against them. They view them as indifferent. But what they don't do is amplify them, add to them, or perpetuate them unnecessarily. So this guy was giving a very nuanced theory. He was saying there's involuntary emotions and voluntary aspects of emotion. And the Stoics change the voluntary aspects while accepting the involuntary aspects. So you're right, I turned white and I was shaking, and that's not a big deal to me. I see that as natural. Like, um, you know, the, the sailors were shaking as well. It's, I'm, I'm not bothered by that. But what I'm not going to do is dwell on it or complain about it or freak out about it. So I'm not going to add to it unnecessarily. So he made a clear distinction between the automatic or involuntary aspects of emotion and the voluntary parts that are under his control to change. That's very nuanced emotional thinking for a guy that was living 2,000 years ago. Yeah, real good. So the Stoics distinguish between these good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, three types of emotion. So there's bad emotions that they want to get rid of, like worrying or ruminating. Um, that are, but they're really talking about the voluntary aspects of bad emotions, like dwelling on things, like revenge fantasies if you're angry and stuff like that. And then there's the, the good emotions that they want to replace them with. So they don't want to be unemotional. They want to have healthy emotions, like love and friendship and stuff like that. The Stoics talk about good emotions a lot. And then there's also the indifferent emotions. And these are the involuntary ones. They call them the propathei in Greek. So these are like the startle reflex. If someone runs up behind you and goes, boo, like you can't stop that. It's a natural response. Or blushing or crying or your heart pounding or trembling or your blood rising. Seneca says these emotional responses are as natural as he puts it. And it sounds very modern when Seneca writes this, although he was writing 2,000 years ago. He says if someone comes up and they poke their finger towards your eye, you'll blink. He's describing what we would call a reflex. He didn't even have a word for it. But he was like, you know that thing where someone puts a foot and you blink? Like, he says, that's what these emotions are like, shaking, crying. Like, a, you know, if somebody suddenly tells you some terrible thing has happened, like you'll turn pale. That's normal, right? Yeah. But what matters, is, what matters is what you do next. Like, how you then choose to respond to that initial flush of involuntary emotions. So in worrying, right, this is very important. So there's involuntary 
parts, it's kind of the initial response. And that could be the physical side of it, sweating, nausea, shaking, blushing, heart racing, and also muscular tension, headaches, tensing of muscles. You can influence those things over time, but the more, at the time that they happen, they're largely reflex-like and automatic. What matters is how we then respond to them. And, but also there's the automatic thoughts that pop into your mind. And, and these things can also be seen as triggers for then a process of thinking. So you have an initial automatic thought. Actually, it could be something you hear on TV. It could be something that Scott says to you or somebody says to you. Like Scott could say, Donald, what if you get hit by a bus tomorrow? And I could go, oh, no, you've got me worrying about that now, Scott. Right? So someone could say something that triggers a chain of worry. Um, or I could just see something or be reminded of something. Or I could just be lying in bed and for no reason suddenly pops in my head spontaneously an automatic thought. And it starts a, a chain of worrying, right? So then what happens next? The voluntary response, right? So Scott said, Donald, you could get out by a bus tomorrow in Greece. It's very, there's a lot of fast buses there, right? And I could be, oh, you're right. So I could now be analyzing that, arguing with myself about it, arguing with Scott about it, worrying about it. I could, so I could engage in prolonged perseverative thinking about it, right? And because that thinking takes place over a prolonged period of time, um, the clue is you can interrupt it, right? Because it goes on over time. It's a process. It's a system of thinking rather than just a spontaneous thought. Because it's a prolonged series of thoughts, you can interrupt that series of thoughts. You can exert control over it. Mm. Uh, or I might go, I need to block this out. I'm going to go and uh, drink a lot of beer. I'll take some drugs. Or I'm going to watch Netflix to distract myself from Scott telling me that I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Like he's upset me now. Like, I'm going to go and watch Netflix and down a bottle of wine. Like, and so that's, I could self-medicate. I could self-comfort as a way of trying to distract myself from the worry. And that would be unhealthy. That's a form of avoidance. Or I could complain about it or repeatedly seek reassurance. And those are also unhealthy ways of coping with the distress, like potentially. I mean, I could claim about, complain about something in an, an assertive constructive way or I could just keep going on and kind of whinging about it in an unhealthy way so it's good and bad types of complaining basically so the way these are my voluntary I the complaining is voluntary the reassurance seeking is voluntary the drinking the bottle of wine is voluntary the watching Netflix these are all the things that happen next are things that I could choose not to do right um but the initial automatic thought that pops into my mind or the thing that someone else says to me I maybe don't have voluntary control over so worry postponement would really follow on from this distinction. So first of all, to spot the initial trigger could be something that I see or hear, or it could be just a thought that pops into my mind. So we call those early warning signs of worry. Like it could be that I notice that I'm starting to get into worry because I notice I'm frowning or tensing up. So catching worry early is the key, either by noticing the automatic thoughts or automatic feelings, like the beginning of the sequence. And for some people, that alone is all that they need to do. There are many people, if they catch their worry early enough, then they, they're naturally able to nip it in the bud and step out of it. That alone is a very powerful behavioral psychology technique, actually an old technique. Um, and you, know, you can train yourself to get better at catching worry and rumination at an earlier stage. And uh, I would sometimes ask people to keep a tally and just count how many worries that they have each day, how many initial thoughts they have each day that are triggers for worry. And that act of taking a step back and counting it can also be something other than 
engaging and worry. So even the very fact of counting it sometimes can be enough to kind of snap you out of the trance, as it were. Like, it can cause you to kind of take a step sideways and kind of notice your worry rather than just getting sucked into it and swept along with it. But then the, the main technique that we want to get people to do often, common technique anyway, is worry postponement. It's actually, in technical jargon, this is called the stimulus control method of managing worry. And it was developed, um, or certainly researchers in the 1980s um, were the first to, to do studies on it. And they found that it's one of the simplest techniques. They, you could write the instructions on the back of a business card. So notice when you're beginning to worry, write down in one or two words what the topic is, fold it, put it in your pocket, and tell yourself you're going to come back to it at a specified time and place later in the day. So postponing it or deferring thinking about it until a time of your choosing. So you're saying, I'm not going to allow that automatic thought to suddenly propel me into a worry. I'm going to say, I might have a think about that, but I'll do it when I choose. Right? And the easiest way to do that is to have a specified worry time. So it could be eight o'clock every evening when you're in the bath with your rubber ducky or whatever. Or it could be in a certain armchair. You might even wear a special worry hat. Do you want to see my worry hat? I want to see it, yeah. It's pretty open. It's pretty thistle like hat. I've got. It's quite faded. Oh, like, my days. Do I look more Canadian already? You do. Do you know what I need to get you, Donald? I got some... Uh, I got the official Cobra Kai headband. Oh, my God. So really? I think I think you should... You should get one of those. I think you need to put this on. A worry headband. <laughs> so I could put this hat on. I could say, I'll only do worrying... When I'm wearing this hat, I nice. worry not not worrying, worrying not worrying, <laughs> right? So you could it's conditioning like Pavlov and his dogs. You can train yourself to say like at eight o'clock every night, I put my hat on, right? I sit down in my favorite chair. I put on, you know, whatever. What are we listening to these days on the playlist, Scott? What well, song? Um, yeah. Mm, I don't know. You could just go eighties maybe. Total Africa. Eighties erasure. I put on erasure, mm. I put on my special worry hat, and then I, that's when I do my worrying. And when the when erasure stops, when the hat comes off, it's over. It's time to go back to work, right? Leaving my worry behind. Right, so you're training, you're conditioning yourself to associate process of worrying with a specific time and place. Because when people do that, they'll go, well, how much time per day do you think you should spend on worrying? What would be a reasonable amount of time? And a lot of people say, ah, People who have severe, like GAD, will say, I spent all day worrying, or many hours. But if I say, well, how much time do you think it would be reasonable to spend worrying? They might say 10 minutes, 20 minutes, I don't know. Like, if you're thinking about a lot of problems, it's hard to generalize, but many problems, you might think, if I haven't figured out a solution after like 20 minutes or half an hour, then maybe I'm just going around in circles, right? I might be as well to leave it and come back to it the next day or something, right? Um, so you put, a, you put a time limit on how long you're going to spend where you're wearing your worry hat, listening to a razor and sitting in your worry chair I like at it. that time of night, right? And so you postpone to a specific worry time. And there's a couple of reasons why this works. And by the way, Borkovic, Tom Borkovic um, is, is one of the leading, he's retired now, I think, but he's an American psychologist, he's an expert in the psychology of worry. And when they did these initial experiments on American college students, they found that these instructions alone like very simple instructions led to a roughly 50% reduction in the frequency, intensity, and duration of worry episodes. Quite a significant reduction in worry. And so this strategy, there are many different protocols or methods in CBT for treating 
pathological worry or generalized anxiety disorder. But as far as the last time I looked, all of them include this technique, right? Because it's the most reliable, most robust technique that we know of for coping with worry. And actually, we now know you can use it for other stuff as well. So not only worrying, but you could use it for depression when you're doing what's called morbid rumination, or you could use it for anger when you're kind of ruminating angrily about something and getting more and more wound up about it. And so one of the reasons that this works is that it forces you to make a clearer distinction between automatic and voluntary thinking. So you, you'll notice the initial thought, and you go, I'm not going to respond to that right now. Fair enough. I just thought, oh, shit, what if I get hit by a bus tomorrow? But I don't have to continue thinking about it. I can, I'll come back to it at 8 o'clock tonight when I put a razor on. Like, and then I'll sit down and think about what if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, right? Like, and uh, I'd probably put the Smiths on for that, to be honest. Oh, I like the Smiths. Big Smiths would be, be better. Yeah. I'd, I'd, listen to, I'd listen to the Smiths if I was thinking about getting hit by a bus tomorrow. But they, <laughs> when you do that, like what happens is usually when you're tense, you're anxious when worry begins, right? And so your brain is in a different state of functioning. It's in anxiety mode, actually, we sometimes call it in, in psychology. And so you're, you're, when you're anxious, you, all sorts of stuff happens, right? Your brain's in a different gear, a different mode of functioning. Even the way you allocate attention is different. You narrow the scope of your attention so you can't entertain as many thoughts at once. Uh, you get more tunnel vision, you'll make generalizations, you'll jump prematurely to conclusions. You do, you, there'll be a bunch of cognitive biases that you experience. You're not in a good frame of mind to think about problems and solve them, right? So one of the things that happens, if you say, I'll come back to this later, anxiety will naturally abate over time, right? So probably at eight o'clock when you put a razor on, you put your hat on and you sit in your chair, apart from the fact you maybe can feel a little bit silly or whatever, right? You're not in the same neurological state that you were in earlier when you started worrying. So now you're probably going to feel different and you're probably going to be thinking differently about getting hit by a bus tomorrow. So earlier, I might have thought, but what if I do get hit by like, you know, that's all I can think about now. I'm getting quite worried about that. I can't really see a solution to this problem. But when I'm calmed down and I'm chill, I think that is the sort of thing that Scott would say, though. Like, <laughs> that's, it's not worth paying attention to that guy. Like, so then when I've calmed down, I'm more able to, to detach from it. Um, and actually, the first question I would ask, uh, eh, there's some disagreement about that, but most, I think most psychotherapists now would say, when you sit down in your worry time, your first question is, is it still worth thinking about this thing? All right. Mm. So you might sit and go, okay, it's time. Put my worry hat on. We sit down, think about getting a bus model. Does it still seem important? And I might go, yeah. well, actually it is, because I've got a lot of dangerous buses around. I think I should come up with an action plan for dealing with it. Or I might think, no, nah, this is stupid, right? It's like, there's no point even thinking about this. In which case, I don't, right? So maybe it's like 50-50 with some people. Like half the time, it's actually a genuine problem that's worth thinking about, but in a calmer, more detached way. And maybe half the time, it just doesn't seem important anymore, mm. right? So just that fact of delaying alone will mean you actually maybe completely get rid of half of your worries. You think you'll end up thinking they're not real worries, like they're not genuine problems. And if it is a genuine problem, you're probably in a calmer, like Socrates said, you know, worry or anxiety prevents you from doing the very thing that's most required, which is to calmly think things through rationally and solve the problem. So when you say, um, you might write down in a bit of paper, getting hit by a bus tomorrow, fold it up, put it in my pocket, I'll come back to that later, right? 
and then return your attention to the present moment. Because when we're absorbed in worry, we lose track of time and we get lost in our thoughts. Um, you don't hear the doorbell ring. You don't notice that your kettle's boiling or whatever, like because you're too worried about stuff. So the opposite of worry would be to come back, lose your mind and come back to your senses, mm. like to be noticed to the world around you and the grounded in the here and now. These are two completely different states of mind. So Borkovic actually uh, was one of the psychologists that would say getting more tuned into the present moment can help you snap out of worry. So when you've noticed a worry, you postponed it. It's useful then to, to notice the colors around you and the sounds that you can hear to bring your attention back into the present moment. Yeah. There's a wee technique. This is this clock. Oh, what happened with Rothio? Did you get some? Yeah. Were you going to get some I clocks or something? Yeah, yeah. They just let me know when they found, I think, moving about somewhere. Because it's got a turtle me... on it. Yeah, with turtles and stuff on it. So we're, we're looking at doing loads of them. But yeah, let me know when they're redoing them, found a place or something like that. Uh -huh. Yeah. Right. Well, this So we were talking about this before. Um, so our artist, my graphic designer, Rothio de Torres, made this clock that says, pay attention to the instant. It's got a little turtle on it. Yeah. And this exercise you can do, it's an old technique. It comes from Gestalt psychotherapy. And, uh, you know, you would just say to yourself, like one way of tricking your brain into paying more attention than normal to something is to put it into words. So when you describe something, you force yourself to pay attention for a bit longer than normal, right? So you would just go, here and now, I notice the sound of Scott scratching his bum. <laughs> or right now I'm aware of an itch on my left shoulder mm. or here now I'm aware of the light glinting off the window pane over there so just kind of like in a very objective way describing the stuff that you can actually hear the stuff you can actually see or smell or feel or whatever but in your senses in the present moment very simply without analyzing it questioning it ruminating about it like so just using descriptions to focus your attention on what's actually going on in your senses. We can call it a here and now meditation. So when you notice worry, you know, that you could potentially do that and that would help to do something that's the opposite of worrying. Mm. So then when you get to the worry time, I mentioned you could put your hat on, you could put your special worry shoes on, your special furry slippers, like you worry and you know, worry pants, but you know, your special underpants that you use to worry, you know, whatever floats your boat. And then does it still seem worth thinking about? And then if it's a problem, the way I've, I, over time, actually, there's a lot of things I could say about this. I'll, we'll dig into this a little bit more in a moment. But the simplest advice I could give to clients is, if it's a genuine problem and you think I do need to think about it, um, just try and think about it with greater self-awareness and more detachment. So like that you notice if your feelings are getting in the way, so that's all. Think about, like, say you've got a problem that you have to solve, like you, you're in debt or something. It's a genuine, serious problem. You were worrying about it. But you'd like to choose the time and place where you can do it in your worry time so you can do it more objectively. Well, first of all, you're probably going to be calmer and more in control if you do this already. But also just making an effort to think about the debt that you're in with greater self-awareness of the way that you're thinking about it and how your thoughts, actions, and feelings are influencing one another as you think about it, and maybe putting a, a time limit on it. So I'd maybe time it, and you might put a cap on it, depending on what the, how complex the problem is. You might say, 
if I haven't come up with a solution within 20 minutes, then I'm probably just going around in circles, right? And I'll, I'll need to come back to it later, right? So timing how long you spend on it can be useful. So the other main technique of stoicism kind of relates to this is this idea, it's not things that upset us, but our judgments about them. It's the most famous quote from Epictetus or all Stoics. In fact, it's such a famous quote from Epictetus that Marcus Aurelius, who's like the generation later, quotes it. Like, and in fact, he quotes it more than once. So even Marcus Aurelius was quoting this. Like, it was just like um, you know, a decade later or something like that. And then from that point onwards throughout history, everyone quotes this bit of Epictetus. Yeah. And I saw the, the, the cognitive therapists, this is the only, like, or the main thing from Stoicism that they tend to quote. Um, it's not things that upset us, but our judgments about them. So we call that cognitive distancing. Now, in the early days of cognitive therapy, we used to, you know, psychologists went, look, when someone is anxious, it's because, and we'll come back to this in a moment, they have anxious thoughts. So the typical formula for that, it varies, but a, gen a generalized template, if you want to get anxious, is to think something awful is going to happen and I won't be able to cope with it. That's called the uh, transactional model, like Richard Lazarus's model of stress and anxiety that was assimilated into early cognitive therapy. And so it came out of research and psychology on stress, actually. Something awful is going to happen and I won't be able to cope with it. It's a classic formula for stress and anxiety. It's, very, it's, it's pretty explicit in worry, actually. I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, so we have those thoughts and Beck would say, well, we need to question the evidence for it. Like, where is the evidence that something bad is going to happen? Where's the evidence against that belief? Where's the evidence that you won't be able to cope? Where's the evidence that maybe you would be able to cope? What would be a more rational, balanced and helpful way of thinking about the same situation? How would someone else think about the situation that you're facing? So we can open up this toolbox of cognitive therapy techniques. But in order to do that, Beck said you have to gain cognitive distance. So we have to use this jargon term because there's not a good English word for describing um, this kind of maneuver in, in psychology. But it's actually a very simple maneuver and it's incredibly important. So Beck said, look, if someone thinks nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I think we'll go and eat worms. Like in order to question is that actually true? Is there, what's the evidence for it? What's the evidence against it? Is it maybe an overgeneralization you're making? You, you have to have the attitude that that belief is up for debate. Like, are you not going to tolerate someone questioning the evidence for it? If you go, I'm just describing, I'm calling it how I see it. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me. So the therapist has to say, well, that's an opinion. It's one way of looking at the situation. And, you know, maybe there's some truth in it, but maybe it's not entirely true, you know, or maybe it's not true at all. Like, you know, what's the evidence for and against it? What would be another way of looking at it? But someone who's completely fused with that thought, as we say, won't even be able to question it. They just think they're describing reality, right? And so Beck said you have to get people to separate the belief from external events and realize it's just an opinion, right? It's, it's a thought, not a fact. Like, uh, it's like a hypothesis. It could be true, it could be false. And then you can weigh up the evidence. And so he saw this as a precursor necessary to doing cognitive therapy. And that's kind of cool, makes sense. But then a bunch of other psychologists, the next generation, the kids, the young guns came along and they said, maybe that's all you need to do if you do it properly. 
Like, what happens if you just do cognitive distancing on its own and you do more of it and you don't even bother questioning the evidence for and against the beliefs? And so there's a large body of research now that shows that cognitive distancing on its own is not just a precursor to therapy, but it could be a whole therapy approach in itself. And it, it, it's very robust and it, it, you can use it to deal with stress. So um, the emotional effect of negative thoughts becomes much weaker if you view them merely as hypotheses. So one way of gaining cognitive distance would be to say to yourself, literally say to yourself, I say, I go, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, Scott. I think I'll go and eat worms. I might say to myself, <laughs> this is just a thought that's upsetting me and not the thing itself. Like, so actually reminding myself, it's just the thought that nobody likes me, everybody uh, hates me. It's the, it's the fact that I'm saying that, telling that to myself that's making me upset. Like, so reminding myself of that, just saying that quote can be helpful in gaining distance and separating my opinions from reality. Or I could go a step further. These are all cognitive distancing techniques we use in therapy. I could say, I notice right now that Donald is telling himself, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. And so I'd slow it down, maybe, and I'd refer to it in the third person. So it's almost like I'm taking a step sideways and I'm looking at myself and going, Donald is saying to himself, nobody likes me, everybody hates me. And by doing that, I weaken, it looks weird if you do it. I know it looks weird if you do it in the bus, right? <laughs> Scott? I like it. People, yeah. yeah, but it weakens the effect of the thought. I've now gained distance. I'm looking at the thought rather than looking through the thought. Oh my God, nobody likes me, everybody hates me. I go, oh, there's a th I'm, he's telling myself nobody likes me, everybody hates me, right? Beck compares it to wearing glasses. If you're wearing rose stitch, I'll put my rose scented glasses on and I'm looking at the world and I'm thinking, Scott's pink and my laptop's pink and the pigeons outside are all pink, right? And then someone comes along and they knock my glasses off my face and I'll think, oh, it's the glasses that are pink. See that? The lenses are pink, right? I thought Scott was pink, but it's not. It's the glasses I was looking at him through, right? And someone goes, here, put these blue glasses. I'll put the blue glasses on. I go, now Scott's blue. Like, and the pigeons are all blue, right? And But imagine you were wearing catastrophic colored glasses. You're like, this is a catastrophe. Like, the, my girlfriend's broken up with me or I've lost my job or whatever. But maybe I'm just, it's the lenses that are catastrophic rather than the, the event itself perhaps is neutral. And the awfulness of it is because I'm looking at it through awfulness tinted glasses. So looking at the glasses rather than looking through the glasses is what we mean by cognitive distance. I've now separated the pinkness or the blueness or the awfulness. I've separated, I've peeled it away from the external event to which it referred. It's a filter I now realize rather than the event itself. So another thing I could do is I could write on paper Nobody likes me, everybody hates me. Or I could imagine it written on a board or on the wall. And the trick to doing that then is to uh, think about the shape of the letters and the color of the letters. So you're now paying more attention to the, the, the thought as an object uh, rather than getting lost in the meaning of it, if that makes sense, right? So um, I tell people to do that who have social anxiety. So they kind of think, everybody thinks I'm an idiot. I say, imagine that everybody's wearing a hat that says Scott is an idiot. 
or Donald is an idiot, or a T-shirt. They've got badges. Imagine they've all got badges on. Like, let's say Donald is a, a Muppet, right? And so now, rather than kind of trying to hide from the thought, I'm saying, bring it on. Like, I'm going to imagine they've got it emblazoned across a T-shirt. But because it's more explicit, I'm going to habituate to it more easily, as we say in psychology. I'm going to get bored with it. At first, I'll be like, oh, no, that guy's got a T-shirt on. says, Donald's an idiot. After a while, I'm going to get bored looking at it. And it's not going to really bother me anymore. Whereas if it's an abstract kind of vague idea, like maybe he's thinking that minute, then I, I won't get habituated to it. Right? I won't get bored with it in the same way. I'm going to, it's going to constantly be kind of like niggling at me. Right? Yeah. Whereas ironically, if I bring it out into the open, I'm going to feel a kind of jolt of anxiety at first, but then that's going to fade permanently. Like, so that's why I always imagine that Scott's wearing a badge that says Donald is a Muppet. <laughs> My friend, my friend, my uh, friend, when we used to play rugby, he used to be like really skinny, and every time he played, he used to be smiling. And the coach used to be uh-huh. like, "You're running against monsters and you're getting killed. Why are you always uh-huh. smiling, playing?" He goes, "Oh, because I'm imagining all the players as clowns." <laughs> so he was just imagining them as clowns and just running about. So it's kind of a good way to go against his fear. Yeah, people have interesting strategies, right? Yeah. And so one of actually, this is, I'll be honest, this is one of my favorite strategies, right? Like, I really like this. And, and by the way, the, the funny thing, like, I say to my clients that worrying is surprisingly fragile. And they start off by saying, what do you mean? Because worrying seems overwhelming and out of control. And by the end of the therapy, like, most of the clients are like, that thing you said about worrying being fragile, I, I didn't believe it, but you're, it is. Like, you're right. Worrying is a complicated process, Right. And the more parts something has, easier it is to break. Like, the more things can go wrong. Worrying has lots of breakable parts easily. It's complicated, right? That's worth knowing. Like, worrying is fragile. Like, uh, you can interrupt it in many ways. So try worrying in a Scottish accent or a Jamaican <laughs> accent. Like, or you know, try rubbing your tummy and patting your head while worrying about getting hit by a bus or, you know, there's many things that you can do that just make it seem kind of awkward or silly or ludicrous, right? So you can go, I'm going to think about these things that freak me out normally, but now I'm doing something else at the same time or I'm doing it in a different way. Like it can lead to diffusion and you can have the thoughts, but you're not overwhelmed by them. So I could still problem solve it while rubbing my tummy and patting my head or doing it in a Scottish accent or whatever. Like, but uh, I can do, um, I have to practice my Scottish accent. <laughs> I do it. It's indistinguishable from Sean Connery. Like, I have to. I told Scott about my uh, idea before he passed away. Unfortunately, I've missed the boat now. But I wanted to have a crowdfunding, like a Kickstarter campaign, to make to pay Sean Connery to narrate the documentary about dinosaurs. <laughs> I I thought that would be really popular because I wanted to hear him say the triceratops and the brontosaurus right that'd make him less scary wouldn't it yeah oh, so the, triceratops. the, the, Stega, the stegosaurus <laughs> like so if you could worry in sean connery's voice nobody likes me everybody hates me <laughs> <laughs> it's you can uh, still problem so you could think about it but it's not <laughs> going to be is overwhelming and actually just slowing it down and thinking about your facial expression what you're doing with your neck and shoulder muscles your breathing 
the location of the voice, the to what we call paralinguistics, right? All the other stuff that's going on, apart from the content of the words, like it snaps you. It's like being in the here and now, right? The tone of your voice is in the here and now. Like your breathing is in the here and now. All the paralinguistics take place in the here and now. So if you pay attention to the way that you're worrying, what accent do I worry with? Like how is the is my voice in my head or in my heart or over my shoulder? Like, could I worry and imagine that the voice that I'm using to worry is in my little finger? <laughs> Nobody likes it. Everybody, like, could I? <laughs> you know, it it makes you do it from a different perspective. And I could still have a, you know, I could think about it like that. I could you need go, one of those like, fingers. Oh, I, I forget how about a bus tomorrow. <laughs> like, um, but it, it's harder to take it seriously. But also, I could have the whole conversation. I'd be diffused from it, but. Like it yeah. wouldn't be as overwhelming and it'd probably be shorter. Like I wouldn't do that for like hours. I'd get a sore finger apart from anything else. Like and it. so the other thing that's really weird, but this is work, this was invented by a psychologist, first person to record this is an English psychologist called Titchener at the beginning of the 20th century. And he was the, the first person, as I understand it, to observe that if you repeat a word or a short phrase rapidly aloud, you it starts to feel meaningless. Mm. And we do this a lot in therapy. There are research studies in psychology labs that show that the optimum amount of time for doing it is 45 seconds. And that when people do it, 90% of them report cognitive diffusion or a sense of like detachment from the thoughts. So if I picked, uh, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I would just go, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, 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 nobody likes me, nobody likes me, everybody hates 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 me, but then when you say it, you'll be like, it doesn't really bother me anymore. Nobody likes me. It just feels like, you know, I can still talk about that. I can think about it. I can problem solve it. But it's not really making me as upset anymore because you've defused from it. Because you're one way of putting it is you're more aware now of the way that you're saying the words and less kind of tunneled into the, the meaning of the words. It would be like, it's a natural phenomenon, Scott. A good way of explaining it is like storytelling. Imagine you're sitting around the campfire back in the day when you were in the Girl Guides, like, <laughs> or the Boy Scouts or whatever. And uh, like, you're sitting around the campfire and somebody's telling a ghost story. And it's pretty scary, right? There's vampires and werewolves in it and ghosts and everything, right? And so you're getting really into it. And you notice that the hairs are starting to stand up in the back of your neck and it's starting to turn a bit pale. It's, it's, it's quite scary. It's affecting you physically, listening to the scary story. But there's another guy sitting next to you, and he's listening to exactly the same words, exactly the same voice, the same person telling it. But he's he needs a he needs to go to the loo, and he's thinking, I wish this guy would hurry up and finish. So he's not really getting his growth done. He's a bit distracted, uh, or he's thinking it's kind of annoying me that this guy's got a funny Scottish accent. He's telling the story. It's kind of getting distracted by his accent. Like, so he's not really getting into it, right? Or it's like if two of you watch a movie and one of you really enjoys it and gets into it and the other one is like analyzing the script 
And so they're not, you're not really getting into the story because you're thinking too much about the way that it's being told. So it's the difference between being lost in the story and thinking too much about the storytelling. Like, yeah. And worry is a story that you tell yourself about imagined catastrophes happening in the future. It's a horror story that you tell yourself. It's a go Worrying is a horror story you tell yourself. And so are you allowing yourself to get lost in the horror story you tell yourself? Or are you going to focus more on storytelling and how you're doing it? Well, the clue is that if, like a psychologist or a therapist, you focus more on the process of storytelling, you'll snap yourself out of the trance by it won't affect you as badly. So it'll give you this, the holy grail of emotional resilience. So there's another technique that we can use um, that's called worry exposure. So the, the single most robustly established technique in the entire field of psychotherapy research, trademark, is uh, this thing called exposure therapy. We've known about this for at least well over actually half a century now. I mean, I won't label the put, but we, we, we know for sure that this works incredibly reliably. And so exposure therapy basically means prolonged repeated confrontation or exposure to the thing that provokes your anxiety. So if someone has a, a snake phobia, like Indiana Jones, and you put them in a room with snakes, a, a pretty reliable index of anxiety is heart rate. So Scott, what will happen to the heart rate of Indiana Jones if we put him in a room full of snakes? I reckon nothing. Nah, it'll skyrocket. It's going to go up. It's going to nearly double within actually just like two or three seconds yeah. as if he was sprinting, right? Yeah. Um, it'll show up to like 140 beats a minute or something, right? Yeah. And so people with anxiety will go, no shit, Sherlock. Like, we know this. And then I'll go, like Socrates, like the fabled Socrates of yore, like having asked them a dumb question that they already know the answer to, then I'll say, but what happens next? And they'll go, well, um, they usually say, the most common answer to that is, um, and then they have, a, they have a wee think about it. So what does happen next? You get used to it, didn't you? Your heart rate starts coming to down. Your heart rate's going to have to come down. What goes up must come down. It's not going to stay right. at 140 beats a minute. It'd be great if it did. You wouldn't have to go to the gym. <laughs> like, we just put you in a room full of snakes and you'd be burning all those calories off. <laughs> like, it's a well-known form of uh, weight loss. Like, <laughs> snake therapy. But it doesn't, yeah, snake therapy. Like, but it doesn't work, right? Funnily enough, because your heart rate will come back down. And when your heart rate goes down, your anxiety levels will go down as well. And then they'll go, well, how quickly will that happen? And it could take anything from like five or 10 minutes to half an hour. It, it varies a bit, actually. Like, but it will come down. Then what happens if you do the same thing the next day? Your heart rate will go up, but not as high, and it will reduce more quickly. And then the day after that, it will go up, but not as high, and it will reduce more quickly. And it'll be like it's kind of zigzag, progressively tending down towards what we call extinction or habituation of the phobia, right? But the exposure has to be for longer than normal. It's going to be like five, 10. That's boring. That's a long time. You wouldn't normally stay in a room full of snakes for like 10 minutes or half an hour or whatever, unless someone else was persuading you to do it if you had a phobia. Like, so that's why therapists make so much money. <laughs> because like clients really don't want to do the things that therapists are getting to think. I have to do it now. I paid that guy like 100 pounds an hour or whatever. 
Like, he's going to make me stand in this room with the snakes. And he'll be like, bloody right arm, because that's going to be the very thing that's going to cure your phobia. <laughs> like, but left to their own devices, phobics have this thing about running away from things that they have, funnily enough, with technical term for it is escape behavior, or even better than escape behavior, which is fleeing the situation, is everyone's favorite coping strategy, avoidance, which is not going in the room in the first place. I'm not even going in there, buddy. Like, so that's what most people would do. If you've got phobia, I'm not, I'm not going in there. Like, but you think, oh, I paid that guy a check. Like, so now, okay, I guess I have to go in the room. And that's leads to habituation, though. That's what cures phobias. But my point is, in childhood, it's your, I, hopefully, it's your parents that encourage you to get out of your comfort zone and to face your fears, right? Uh, but in adult life, we sometimes have to pay a therapist. Like, we'd pay a fitness instructor. I don't, Scott, I wouldn't need to pay you. Like, I could just stand at home and I could just, I could just jumping jacks all day long. Oh, yeah. Right. And I'd be as fit as a, uh, a butcher's dog. Hercules, yeah. But I'd get bored. So that's, that's why I have to pay a fitness instructor, partly. And also, you know, maybe for guidance on techniques and stuff like that. But is it not true that to some extent, like you could just read a book on exercise and go and do it on your own. Oh, yeah. But people aren't motivated necessarily unless there's other people encouraging. Maybe it could be their friends. So they join a running club or whatever, or it could be a, fit, a gym instructor, a fitness instructor or whatever. It's the same as a psychotherapist. It's maybe not telling you anything that's a big revelation. Like, but people feel that they need someone to encourage them, like, you know, to carry on, to do just, like another five minutes in the treadmill or just to do one more press up or just stay in that room with the snakes for another couple of minutes. Like otherwise they'll quit or they'll run away. Like, and then they won't get the benefit from it as much. So if someone puts themselves in a room full of snakes and their anxiety goes up and then they run, that doesn't help them and it can make them worse. Mm. Like, but if they stay in it until their anxiety comes down at least like half the way or two thirds of the way, that leads to habituation about 90% of more than 90% of the time, actually. And now there's another problem. So it has to be prolonged and repeated. And then the other problem is that there's a thing called subtle avoidance or therapists call it safety seeking behavior. And that means that when you, there may be other reasons why like lots of subtle ways that you could prevent habituation from happening. Habituation works on even very primitive life forms like a hamster. You could give a hamster a phobia and you could cure a hamster's phobia like that. And this is, I, I, I don't like saying this nowadays because a lot of early behavioral experiments involve experiments in animals that we might consider um, kind of unethical today or, or whatever. But they get, one of the pioneers of behavioral therapy did a lot of experiments on cats where he induced phobias in them um, just by, like, by making loud noises or whatever or um, giving them uh, electric shocks, mild electric shocks, which are I'm, I'm reliably informed were harmless, but freak the cat out. Like Volpe, the guy that does this, it, like defending it, says, to be honest, you can make a cat like alarm, you know, just by clapping hands or something like that. So he would startle the cats um, and give them a phobia for um, being in a particular room. And then he would cure the phobia by doing graduated exposure therapy, basically, or his version of it. But subtle avoidance might consist in uh, closing your eyes. 
um, clinging on to someone else for safety, uh, repeating a mantra, um, just trying to block out the feelings, controlling your breathing. So there's a bunch of things that people might do that you might, and I, I might not even be able to see them doing, which, which are attempts to control their anxiety or block the feelings out. Now, often people think of those as self-help techniques, right? But actually, in many cases, they prevent natural emotional processing from taking place, and they can prevent habituation from happening. So therapists have to, usually a lot of the work of therapy is saying to a client to stop, stop trying to control your breathing, stop trying to distract yourself, just allow yourself to feel the anxiety and wait like to ride it out because then your brain will process it like it's chewing it over and digesting it and it'll get past it. Like, but if you're kind of trying to block it out and you're struggling against it, like, then you might remain in the situation but you don't habituate. Like, an animal would habituate, but humans complicate it because we have these subtle subjective uh, defensive techniques. So actually, like if you're doing exposure therapy at home, you have to be careful. You don't pick something that's overwhelming. People with certain mental health problems like panic disorder, it might be more problematic for them to do it. Um, but if it takes 20 minutes or 15 minutes of exposing yourself, you can do it in your imagination. If you have a snake phobia, you could visualize snakes. And that works almost as well. But MP3s help a lot. Recordings help a lot because you could listen to a recording for 20 minutes that talks you through imagining snakes or whatever. Otherwise it's hard on your own to sit and visualize snakes for that amount of time, right? But if you're watching a video or listen to a recording, it can make it easier for to, to do it for long enough. Yeah. Um, and the anxiety has to come down sufficiently far before you stop or won't benefit. Right, so here's an interesting question. So a lot of people would say, well, surely when you're worrying about snakes, or you're worrying about getting hit by a bus or something else, then that's a form of mental exposure. Like, so I worry about stuff for hours, clients will say, and the anxiety doesn't go away. In fact, it gets worse. So there's an interesting paradox there. If worrying involves prolonged thinking about things that cause anxiety, why doesn't it lead to habituation? And psychologists thought that's a paradox. It seems strange because imaginal exposure works 90% of the time. If we have someone who's frightened of snakes and they visualize snakes, they get bored with it eventually and anxiety wears off. But the people come into therapy and they say, I've been worrying about snakes or worrying about losing my job for hours every day for years and I'm still just as anxious, if not worse. So that seems odd. Like, why doesn't anxiety just wear off? Why don't they get bored thinking about it? It's because of the cognitive avoidance model of worry, Scott which was developed ah. by Borkovec, the psychologist that we met earlier. And he also noticed something really cool, right? So you, luckily we used a very convenient example because you said earlier, if we put Indiana Jones in a room full of snakes, his heart rate's gonna go up quite noticeably. It's gonna go up a lot, like, big, like 140 beats per minute, maybe something like that, 120. When people worry, even if they have pathological worry disorder, like um, generalized anxiety disorder, Borkovic noticed something, and other researchers noticed something weird about this. But I remember earlier also, call back to something I mentioned earlier, I said there's different types of anxiety. There's PTSD, there's generalized anxiety disorder, there's phobias and social anxiety and stuff like that, all different, right? So Borkovic wired these kids up 
to heart rate monitors and skin galvanometers and stuff like that, respiratory monitors and a psychology department. And they said, like, start worrying. Like, and people would say, oh, I'm really worried. I'm getting quite anxious and stuff. But the heart rates didn't go up. Like, or if they did go up, they went up a little bit, not, they didn't double. And uh, it would be very rare for them to increase that much. Most they'd just go up like 10 beats per minute or something. But actually, even weirder, in some cases, the heart rate went down. That's paradoxical because it's the opposite of what we'd expect. What the hell is going on? Like, this guy's worrying. Like, he's he's got severe pathological worrying. He says he's suffering intense anxiety. His heart rate's actually gone down. And he's not really showing other physiological symptoms of worrying either, except one, which is muscular tension, right? So he, and, and people with generalized anxiety disorder often complain of tension headaches, a pain in their neck and shoulders and stuff like that. Um, and so Borkovic said, well, maybe worrying, although people think when they're worrying, they're dwelling a lot on the problem, maybe they're doing the opposite. Maybe worrying, dun, 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 is a form of avoidance. Ooh. Oh my Maybe God. Worrying is a form of avoidance. All this time you've been thinking, I've been thinking about my problems all day long, every day. Maybe you're avoiding thinking about your problems, buddy, by worrying about <laughs> them. Like, how could that be possible? Like, it seems deeply paradoxical. Well, first of all, worrying is predominantly verbal, not visual. Like, and for that reason, it tends to be abstract and vague. Whereas for imaginal exposure therapy to work, what we call habituation has to be concrete. It's usually visual, right? And it tends to involve kind of jumping around. So I worry about, I'm all over the place, like a butterfly mind worrying about different aspects of the problem. So I'm not confronting one aspect of it for long enough to habituate to it. First of all, it would be like, if you visualize the room full of snakes, but you're really just jumping around picturing lots of different images of snakes, that won't lead to habituation. You need to stay with the same image more or less until the anxiety wears off. But if you're just thinking of lots of different images or you're just thinking about talking about it in a really vague way, you, you won't habituate. Um, so people who worry verbally, their anxiety never goes up as high as it would in a phobia. And because of that, it never goes down it's maintained at a kind of threshold level yeah. permanently. Why? So it's deeply toxic, right? So you're kind of keeping yourself keyed up and on the edge of time and maintaining the muscular tension because you're not allowing yourself to feel the other physiological symptoms, which you'd have to do in order to get past them. So worrying is a form of maintaining, permanently maintaining uh, anxiety. And uh, it also... When people are worrying, they're, they're avoiding, it's a form of subtle avoidance. They're preventing themselves from really experiencing the unpleasant feelings uh, fully. Like, so they have some unpleasant feelings, but they're masking it by the constant internal dialogue. They keep distracting themselves over. So they feel it, distract, feel, distract, feel, distract. Like they're kind of going round and round and round and round in circles rather than just going in the room with the snakes and waiting, right? So if I worry about losing my job, if I was to do that as a marginal exposure, I would visualize my boss. What is it, P45 or something? Like I'd visualize my boss, you know, telling me that I'm fired 
and I would just maybe make a little movie clip and just go through that repeatedly, or I'd just focus on an image of it until the anxiety wears off. But if I'm having a whole debate about it that goes round and round, then the anxiety will never go away. Yeah. Like, I'll just perpetuate it. So a simplified version of that, really simple, is if you're worrying about something, an easy thing you can try doing is replace the verbal worrying with visual exposure. So visualize in a more slowed down and static way the stuff that you're talking about until you get used to it. And so one of the things that goes on, um, this is one of the last things that I want to mention, so we'll kind of wrap up in a minute. So everyone's favorite neologism, catastrophizing. Uh, worrying is just, can be defined as a series of catastrophizing thoughts. And so catastrophizing is when we kind of blow a threat out of proportion, right? And it's often framed in worrying, it often takes the form of questions. So typically, the, I said the, the model for anxiety from Richard Lazarus earlier was, um, what if something awful happens, how will I cope, basically? So those are the two questions that people ask over and over. What if I get hit by a bus? How will I cope? What will I do? What if I lose my job? What if my girlfriend dumps me? Like, I've, I've got no idea what to do. Like, what will I do? Like, so these questions that involve an overestimation of the probability of a threat and an overestimation of the severity of the threat and an underestimation of my coping resources or coping ability. Like, so because it's framed in as questions that are never answered, it keeps going round and round and round in circles, right? Yeah. So often we can kind of question, like, is that actually as likely to happen as I think? Even if it did happen, would it be as bad as I think? And even if it was as bad as I think, would I be as incapable of coping with it and recovering from it as I'm telling myself? So this kind of constant sense of looming catastrophic threat and a total inability to cope is a recipe for neurotic or pathological worrying, basically. And decatastrophizing would be training yourself to view the situation more rationally and realistically, and also to have a more realistic and more constructive appraisal of your ability to cope. So one way of doing that is the fabled decatastrophizing via time projection, which sounds like an episode of Doctor Who or something. <laughs> like, but decatastrophizing via time projection, as I like to call it, like would be um, when you notice, like when, when you worry about stuff, like, so when you worry about stuff, it's something in the future that you're thinking about. It's future, is very future focused. That's partly why it's not grounded in the here and now. That's why noticing the colors around you, noticing your breathing snaps you out of worry. Worry is all about something in the future. You have to stretch, suspend your mind into the future, like in order to, to worry properly. But when you're thinking about the future, you're thinking about a period of time there's a weird arbitrariness about that, right? Why wouldn't you think about what happens next? Why do you only think about your boss handing you a P45 or sacking you or whatever? 
and not go on to think about what would happen the next day and the day after that and the week after that. Mm. So sometimes we call this turning what if thinking, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? What if that happens? That's worrying. Turn it into so what if thinking. So what if I lose my job? So what if my girlfriend dumps me? And when you are able to frame it like that, it's easier to then, you naturally feel more like going on and saying, well, so what if I lose this job? I'll just start a business or I'll find another job. Like, right? So what if my girlfriend dumps me? There's plenty more fish in the sea. Or, you know, I'll find someone else. Or like, um, so, so the question we ask in therapy, and this is really easy. This is like the easiest thing I do in therapy, right? It's almost so easy. Like, I'm not sure that I should charge money for it. But, <laughs> but I do. Like, but the, this is like an easy... So there are th things that therapists do that are tricky and require skill and experience. Like, and then there's other things that are a piece of cake and any idiot could do. Right. And then one of them is to ask people, well, what will probably happen next? So someone will come in and say, oh, my girlfriend might dump me and I'm really worried about it. And you can say, well, suppose that your girlfriend did dump you, what would probably happen next? And then it's usually bad, right? They say, well, I'd sit at home and I'd cry. And, you know, and then you say, well, what will probably happen next? Suppose you sat at home and cried, well, what will probably happen next? Well, like I'd, I'd, I'd just be really withdrawn and depressed for a while. And suppose that happened, what would probably happen next? Well, I guess eventually, like I'd go on Tinder or whatever, or what will probably happen next? Well, I'll probably kind of like get knocked back a few times or like have some, what will probably happen next? Well, I guess eventually, like I'll meet somebody and go, what will probably happen next? Well, maybe I'll have a few dates. I don't know what will probably happen next. Well, I guess eventually I'll meet somebody. And if you keep going forward long enough, eventually somebody will picture themselves recovering from the setback, right? So first of all, they'll have broadened their chronological perspective and that tends to mitigate the emotional impact of the feared catastrophic event. And secondly, sneakily, that you've forced them to think about coping strategies. What probably happened next is a roundabout way of saying, what are you going to do next? So I guess I'll do this. I guess I'll do that. Now your low estimate, your underestimate of your coping ability is going to have to come up. Like, that's part of what goes, I can't, I don't know what I'll do. What will probably happen next? Well, I guess I'll do this and I'll do that. Now you're thinking about what you're going to do, how you're going to cope. And it doesn't seem that crazy. It seems pretty straightforward, actually. I guess it's obvious what I'd do. Like, so if you go from thinking, like, uh, how will I be able to cope to thinking, I guess it's obvious what I'd have to do, then your anxiety will, and stress will tend to reduce, right? And one way of doing that is just nudge, nudge, nudge. What will probably happen next? What will probably happen next? What will probably happen mm. next? Right? Why would you confine it to the worst part of the story and never move beyond that to think about how you would recover from it? Like, doesn't make any sense. We do a lot of things in life, Scott, that don't make any sense. <laughs> so we that reminds me of this technique that we mentioned earlier called the view from above. So one of the things that we know from modern psychological research, and this is our last technique, is that when people are angry or anxious or worried, they narrow their focus of attention, like putting the, the feared scenario or object under a magnifying glass, and we focus on negative events. And the, the Stoics had this technique called view from above, where they would imagine broadening their perspective, like looking down from the Acropolis and the Agora below. So Marcus Aurelius says, imagine from some high watchtower, you're looking down on your life and the events that are unfolding 
So basically broadening your chronological and spatial perspective. And that allows you to not avoid the problem. You're still thinking about the problem. But you're thinking about other stuff as well. Like, so it gets watered down, it gets diluted. Right? So it's not just a bad thing. There's also other things. Right? So now you have a more complex, nuanced, balanced emotional response to the situation. You're not just taking the worst bit of it, putting that under a magnifying glass. But we naturally do that when we're upset. It's a broadening of perspective for a number of reasons naturally snaps us out of the trance and puts us in a more balanced, functional frame of mind, like looking down from the Acropolis. And the, asking what next, what next is a little, is a similar kind of technique. It, it forces us to stretch our perspective chronologically, but we can do it spatially as well. We call that the view from above. Or as Marcus Aurelius said, take a bird's eye view of the world. It's endless gatherings and endless ceremonies, many journeys in both storm and calm, and the transformations of things coming to be, existing and ceasing to be, like everything has its lifespan, things coming and going, nothing lasts forever. Or as Abraham Lincoln famously said, this too shall pass. So when you take the broader perspective, it also encourages you to think about the transience of things because you expand your chronological perspective like there's you acknowledge change if i think i've got a really bad toothache at the moment but it's not going to last forever like if i broaden my chronological perspective and i think that something is temporary in a sneaky way that allows me to think about the presence of the toothache and the absence of the toothache at the same time and that'll tend to moderate, balance out my emotional reaction to it. How weird is that? But just yeah. by thinking about a broader perspective. So something really bad happening, well, it's going to be over in the future. So I'm now, in a perfectly rational way, exposing my mind to both the presence and the absence of the thing. Whereas if I don't do that, and I put it under a magnifying glass, I'm only thinking about the presence of the thing. So I get the kind of rarefied, intensified, the uh, essence of it, like, which is going to be emotionally overwhelming for me. And it doesn't really help me plan coping behavior and stuff like that. So it's a recipe for disaster doing that. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is an introduction to stoicism, how to get started with stoicism, and uh, how to use stoicism to cope with worry or stop worrying in a nutshell. What do you think of that, Scott? Really good. I love it. Uh, there's so many techniques that people can take away. Um, We'll, we, we can share the slides of the group, yeah? If nothing else, worrying in a Sean Connery wash. <laughs> That's like, my favorite. I actually really like the, um, the finger and then get a finger puppet. Right. Get a little puppet, finger bob. <laughs> go, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Think of what, what if everybody thinks I'm an idiot? What if, like, what if I go out on a day and the girl doesn't like me? I, and, you know, if you do that for long enough, it just seems ridiculous. You go, I can still think about it, but why would they even bother about, like, you know, worrying about something like that? It's just one way of looking at things. Like, I could equally think, well, maybe it doesn't matter that much. It's good. There's, uh, there's something I plucked out from the comments that said, uh, I think it was said by Lee, she's gone now. She said, uh, my little girl has been asked, just asked, Mummy, how does this man know all of this stuff? <laughs> I said that he's learned it. She said, right, I'm going to get a book. I want to be that smart. <laughs> That's good, but I've got a better, I've got an even better answer. Like I used to tell my wee girl, people said Socrates was one of the wisest people that ever lived. I used to say to Poppy, my daughter, and I said, do you know how he became like one of the wisest people in, in history? And Poppy would say, I don't know, Daddy. 
And I said, because he asked lots of questions. Mm. Like, he asked, he asked um, all the most important questions that he could think of. Like, he was known for asking questions. And he listened very carefully to the answers. Like, so reading books is good, but also asking questions about things is very important as well if you want to learn a lot of stuff. Like, and also saying things in public. Because, you know, if you give talks and lectures and speak in public, then you learn. Because, like, you know, like if your people will tell you, they might say, Donald, I don't agree with something you said. Or, and you, you know, all this stuff that people hate on the internet. You go on the internet and people said I was an idiot. Yeah, but maybe you are. Like, so maybe you said something and it is wrong, right? And so, like, if you retreat from society and from other people, like, one of the things you might avoid is, is getting correction from other people. Like, and, you know, maybe they've got legitimate questions about, about the stuff that you're saying. So I've been lucky over the years. I used to have to teach psychotherapists. I ran a training school for them. And that's kind of like really, you know, a lot of people, like they'd rather have their teeth pulled than stand <laughs> all day long in front of a room of psychiatrists and psychotherapists trying to teach them stuff. Like, because they're notoriously argumentative, like like me, right? And, but I got used to it pretty quickly. And, and after a while, I thought, I can't look any more like an idiot than I do already. So I persevered with it. And I got quite good uh, debating things in psychology. Like I did it all day long. I'd do it for like seven days in a row all day, every day. Um, and that was my, the main part of my job. So going out, putting yourself out there and sharing your ideas and not being afraid of criticism and not being unafraid of making mistakes or looking stupid is one of the ways that you learn. You learn by trial and error. Like you have to make mistakes to learn. Like, yes. I like that. That's, a, that's an important point to leave on. It's the start of the challenge. You're all going to make mistakes. You're going to look stupid tomorrow trying to do some kicks. You're going to look stupid trying the worry technique in the first time. You might go, oh, that's a good thing. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people. And also, like, you know, there's a lot. Maybe we can leave on this because next week we're talking about values, right? Um, I, want, I want to make sure that um, people engage in the Zoom calls, in the breakout rooms, on video, because they get the most out of it, or on the yoga sessions, go on camera. What do you say to someone who is feeling anxious about just getting on the camera and talking because they might not do it when you're talking to other people like so social anxiety and stuff like that again kind of depends on the nature of their anxiety but really focusing more on the other person than on yourself is known to often be a, a, an important way of overcoming um self-consciousness and anxiety we train in modern psychotherapy we train people to shift their attention more onto other people and actually like i said earlier about the here and now technique and going now I hear the pigeons outside and I can feel an itch from my shoulder. Um, one of the tricks we do is to, when you're talking to people, just notice what color their eyes are. And then, you know, that's you started paying more attention to them. You know, maybe just kind of like look at the clothes that they're wearing, like their hair, you know, maybe imagine that later on you're going to try and draw a sketch of them. So you're like trying to pay more attention to their, their facial characteristics and stuff. And the more you pay attention to other people, especially if you practice that and get used to it, uh, you know, you, if you can see the other people you're talking to, like that'll tend to reduce your, your anxiety. Or, I mean, I suppose even if you can't see them, like try and identify what your biggest fear is. Like, I don't know, they, they're gonna think you're boring or they're gonna think you're stupid or whatever. Like, and then just do diffusion on it. Like go, everyone thinks I'm stupid, everyone thinks I'm stupid, and just repeat it like 45 seconds until you're bored of like saying it and then the words just seem like gobbledygook 
after a while and, and then it won't really bother you as much. That's good advice. So next on tomorrow's Zoom for the martial arts, they'll start to take the advice. Um, but yeah, we're back every Monday with Donald for this challenge. So it's going to be good. Next week, same time, same place. Donald, you're in, yeah? You're not mm-hmm. going to... Yeah, definitely. Reese isn't going to take you. Those dogs are not going to eat you alive. No. Dogs. There's a lot of dogs outside. And the pigeons won't... As long as the pigeons don't get me. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of love for you tonight, Donald. Everybody's saying it's been amazing. So... Oh, thanks. Yeah. That's very nice of them. They're good people, Scott. They're really good people, in eh? Really nice people. Yeah. Really, they're not, they're you know, learning on this in a night, you know dig diving into stoicism that's mm-hmm. something only not point not 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 one percent of people would do with their time on a on a monday evening mm-hmm. so they're in the elites of stoicism right now it's the true elites of learning so it's good but yeah we'll be back next week everyone donald we can i share the slides with the gang yeah yeah cool i'll send you a link yeah you can share them nice one guys thank you so much for tuning in for the first one we'll be back next week so don't worry and i'll be uh distilling all this wisdom Bye everyone. Bye everyone. There we are.